Something in me shifted, and I can't explain it. And people are like, what happened to you? I go, I still don't know, other than I was this way, and now I'm that way. But I remember clearly who I used to be, and I'm nothing like that guy anymore. But I can be if I take one drink, which a lot of people are like, oh, that's dramatic. I'm like, you want to see dramatic? Like, let's go out drinking. That's Chris Davis, and this is The Ritual Podcast. Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's going on? What's happening? Greetings. My name is Rich Roll. I'm your host. Welcome to the Rich Roll Podcast. Thank you so much to everybody out there who has shared the show with your friends and your colleagues. I appreciate you subscribing to the show on iTunes and of course for leaving a review. If you haven't left a review for us on iTunes, please do that. It takes a minute. It really does help us out a lot. It really helps with the visibility of the show as well. So thank you so much. And of course, mad love to everybody who has made a habit of always using the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com for all your Amazon purchases. That really does help us out tremendously. It doesn't cost you a cent extra. You can click through that banner ad on any episode page on my site or just type in richroll.com forward slash Amazon. Today's episode is brought to you by... We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt technology. Technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics, and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor-fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team. From increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. 
They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So I was in Cleveland a couple of weeks ago. I was speaking at the VegFest there, which incidentally was a really fantastic event, beautiful facility, great city, warm reception. The whole thing was phenomenal. Thank you to everybody who turned up. I enjoyed every minute of it. But while I was there, I did an interview with a young guy. His name is Ross Settledge. I know he's listening. Shout out to Ross. How you doing? Uh, and Ross asked me a question, uh, and it's a question that I get a lot. And that question is, who inspires me? And my answer to that question might surprise you. Uh, it's not the typical candidates of super inspiring, famous personalities in the world. I mean, of course, I derive a certain level of inspiration from people like that, but the folks that really move the needle for me are just the average, normal, everyday people who face crazy, seemingly insurmountable obstacles anonymously and then somehow find the wherewithal to overcome them and go on to live pretty cool and sometimes even magical lives. So as fun and as awesome as it is to have super famous guests on this podcast, the Ariana Huffingtons and the Russell Simmons and Moby and Steve-O, like I admit it, I, I love talking to all those people. But this week, I wanna shift gears a little bit because one of the things that I think really sets this show apart from the others that really distinguishes it is that I entertain the prospect and I absolutely love bringing people on the program who are just average people from my life, anonymous everyday people who happen to inspire me. And it's awesome to provide them with a microphone and an opportunity to share their story with you. Like I find inspiration from it and to be able to provide that inspiration to you guys through this platform is just a super cool and very, very unique thing. So Chris Davis is one of those guys. He's not famous. He hasn't written a book. If you Google him, you're not going to really find anything about him. He's just a dude, just a guy trying to make it through life like the rest of us, a husband, a father, but also a man with a pretty insane background when it comes to alcohol and drugs and all forms of insanity that include the military and cancer and survival. 
I think we all need people in our life that we turn to for advice, for counsel, for guidance. I call it having a board of advisors, and I have different people for different topics and situations and life categories and dilemmas, people I can count on for everything from relationships to diet, fitness, marriage, career, parenting, finances, and the like. But in the area of addiction, alcoholism, sobriety, recovery, Chris is a guy who really looms large as one of my go-to advisors, a guy I can really count on for honest, at times (laughs) incisive, but always smart and helpful feedback. He's a guy who just grounds me, a guy who really keeps me honest. And he's also a man who's too humble to tell you how many people he's helped, how many lives he has literally helped save over the many years of his sober journey. But I can tell you, it's a lot. He's a straight shooter through and through, and everybody needs a guy like that in their life. And if you don't have one, you should find one. Finally, a quick note before we get underway today. A fair amount of foul language in today's conversation. Yes, it's true. I think that makes three shows in a row with a bunch of F-bombs. Look, I'm trying to run a clean show here. I really am. I even have that clean lyrics graphic on my iTunes show page. Maybe I should look into changing that, but that would require that I know how to do that, which I don't. In any event, I'm just pointing it out for the sensitive among us or if the kitties are around, you know, pop in the earbuds, whatever, just a heads up. All right. It's a privilege to have Chris Davis in my life. It's a privilege to call him friend. And it's an absolute privilege to share his story with you guys today. That went well. I was actually impressed. You like the Jack Canfield one? Yeah. Uh, he was tricky because, you know, it's funny because I was thinking about you during that interview. And I'm like, what would Chris Davis say to a guy who wrote a book called The 30 Day Sobriety Solution? How to cut back or quit drinking in the privacy of your own home. Yeah, I like that. He was like, it's all a trick. Like, uh-huh. they're not, not going to have to go to AA. He's kind of saying, well, he wasn't entirely saying that, but I feel like the title of the book is somewhat disingenuous as to the message that he spoke to in the podcast, right? Because he was kind of saying like, listen, of course you need community. You got to talk to people. You have to like be around people. So the idea in the title that you're going to do this in the privacy of your own home, uh, you know, and just solve alcoholism through isolation. But he does know how to sell a lot of books. So That he does. 97% of those books will never leave those living rooms. And I will say this, that he... uh, we're talking about Jack Canfield. Did we say his name? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the listeners. Uh, Jack C. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing about him is that, and I said this, I think, as I recall, in the outset of the podcast, like his real gift is that he's able to translate these spiritual tenets and set them forth in an extremely digestible way for the average American. And I think what you can infer from that, that he's like spirituality light, you know what I mean? But then when you talk to him, he's super steeped in all these traditions and he knows all about it and he's read all these books and he's experimented on himself. So I think that, you know, he runs a lot deeper than his books sort of, you know, might give you the impression. The the books might give you an impression that he's kind of operating at a surface level, but the more you talk to him, you realize like there's a lot more going on. Exactly, yeah. He presents it like, He's scratching the surface. And then you're like, this dude's been down in the ore mines. Right. And has hit the mother load a number of times over and over. Because some of the stuff, I'm like, I need a dictionary to listen to this fucker. I was like, (laughs) he's like, oh, and then I was doing this like Sufi mysticism. And I'm like, of course you did. And you study that, then you move on and then you move on. 
What about the tapping? The tapping, you know, I fell asleep as the, because I was listening to your podcast at like three or four or five in the morning. Uh -huh. And I started hearing the tapping and I could hear him explain it to you. And he's like, oh, dude, it's all over YouTube. Just go there. Like, right. they're giving the whole store away. And I was right. like, look at Canfield. <laughs> he's like, yeah. And to just try. And I was like, I'm, a, I'm like you. I'm open to all that stuff. Right. Well, let's unpack it a little bit because, uh, you know, first of all, I'll say, Thank you for, for doing this. Um, it's refreshing to do it with a friend. Uh, and it's nice that uh, it's not about like a book that's coming out or some kind of agenda that you're pushing. Like, I just thought it would be great to sit down with you because I consider you to be in many ways a mentor in sobriety and somebody who's like full of wisdom and has an incredible personal story. And I just thought it would be amazing to be able to share the Chris Davis experience with, a, uh, with a, the audience at large. So. Where does it all begin? With, with you, your man? large audience, because I'm looking, I'm like, oh yeah, Russell Simmons, that was great. Joseph Nels, and uh -huh. I, you know, I listen to all know? of these, right? And then I'm like, oh yeah, let's see, Doug, who's getting ready to change the planet, Doug Evans, yeah, Jasmine, who's like awesome, John Joseph, who's hilarious, He's I love best, that right? guy, and you know him personally, yeah, ran into him, and then Ariana, and then Jack Canfield, and then and like Chris me. Davis, <laughs> and I'm like. I know. Here's the thing. Let me just say this right up front. Like, it's really cool to have people like Ariana Huffington and Russell Simmons on the show. And obviously, you know, that's like a boost for the ego. And that's probably going to get more downloads and attention. But for me, the most personally gratifying experiences that I've had on this podcast are having people like yourself on, like, just like somebody that no one really knows about who I think is personally inspiring, who has an amazing story and opening up with them. You know, that's really the most fun and where the real kind of heart of this show lives, I think. That's what we're doing today. I'm down. It yeah. may get a little noisy, not that's as right. noisy as Russell Simmons was. Right, but we're in some kind of weird building right here that's like half rehab, half like private. What is going on? You own this building or you're renovating it? What are the you doing? building was taken over by a rehab. They have a million dollar kitchen. I don't know if you saw that independent film John Favreau did called Chef. Yes. That's the kitchen right there. Oh, right behind us. Yeah. Wow. Right. So it used to be like a private dining hall. It was a public it restaurant filming. and they asked me to come in and help put together the kitchen because they have a lot of clients and a lot of these guys and girls are used to eating in gas station parking lots and jail and whatever. Right. So... I saw the kitchen and I was like, well, let me bring in an executive chef who knows what he's doing. So I thought it's a good opportunity. I brought him in. I was just like, you got to hire this guy. And they're like, great, you got to manage him. And I'm like, I don't manage people. And then they're like, oh yeah, and you're going to manage the building too. Congratulations. So uh -huh. then I did that. I took the private dining room. We designed based on tiny houses. We now have like five soundproof, perfect therapy rooms that are just busy all day long so people can go in there i've got like you know the could but it's be spa a, music is it like a sober living or it's like a rehab i mean do people are the there rehab, people living in this building no 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 the rehab next door is the what they call iop intensive outpatient uh -huh. so all of the they call them clients i call them fucking patients but <laughs> they bust them in i don't know a lot of clients that ride in like econo line vans my clients you know, yeah, yeah yeah i always remind them i go you're kind of an inpatient but that's awesome um it's hard to build self-esteem when you have none so throwing like high self-esteem like client i just i don't buy mm -hmm. that bullshit so they all come in from different sober livings and recovery houses they do all of their groups and things next door. They have like 
dudes doing sound bowls and gong and like they do education they'll help them get jobs and all this stuff and clean up and like teach them about alcoholism and drug addiction and they were feeding everybody across the street but there's so many clients now like we're feeding in here 130 people a day just lunch and it is like a fucking plague of locusts like at noon it's just a line you don't want to really fuck with. Right. And then it, it's sort well, of like the, like the population is similar to like the people that go to Claire. Yes. Claire found, yeah, Claire or Foundation. Salvation Army right. or prison or county jail or welfare lines. Or, uh-huh. It's kind of. So who funds this operation then? The people that own it, uh, their company is called Community Recovery. And they're just like, hey, let's just help everybody. I mean, mm-hmm. rehabs to the rich and famous. They got their own agenda. But this guy's kind of like, you know, the the American mental health system and medical system, it's fucking failed. It right. failed in the 80s. Reagan killed that thing. That's when the population of homeless people exploded and, like, the term became homeless. They were called bums when I was one. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you know, everybody's got, you know, like, client, homeless. So, anyway, he's just kind of like the net catching them in the gutter before they actually go into the drain and never... Never to be seen. Get another chance again. So Uh So this is the last, this is last exit to Brooklyn. Yeah. And there is a thing about putting a, I don't know. I used to design stuff in commercials and music videos. So I designed all this, put this in to break up the dining room. So it wasn't a giant mass hangout. Uh So they do yoga in here. They do groups. They have uh, they bring yeah, there's in a podium guest there, speakers so you have meetings and stuff like yeah, that. And yeah. there's a right across the street. Is the Tuesday night meeting still go on in the that facility across the street here? I think so, but I think yeah. it's limping along. Right, those on things the have their shelf life. All right, let's let's back it up. I want to get to the superhero origin story that starts in. <laughs> In the South, right? South Carolina. <coughs> oh, yes. Yeah. Charleston. Is that Very. where you grew up? I mean, I know that's where you kind of went to high school and stuff like that. If but, you're on yeah. Charleston and you look yonder to the big trees that look like they're floating in the ocean, that is James Island mm-hmm. that is connected to, at the very tip of James Island, connected to a place called Fort Sumter, where at low tide, all the rednecks ran across and took over. Well, it's called Fort Johnson, and they ran over at low tide and took over Fort Sumter, starting the whole fucking annoying mm-hmm. civil war. Right. And then apparently they just lined the, the side red of the coat, fort. The red coats or the rednecks? The rednecks. <laughs> I think the red coats have been that was dealt a revolutionary with. war, yeah. right? Okay. A lot of red. Uh huh. The red apparently so, doesn't win. It's paint, not the color to pick. <laughs> paint the picture of a young Chris Davis in the South. Um, mom, Montessori school teacher, dad, spending a lot of time in Vietnam, mm-hmm. dropped out of the Citadel where he was going to be an officer. Vietnam came. There's some weird patriotic thread in us where we're just like, fuck yeah, let's do you it. There's a lot of military in your family, right? A lot. Yeah. Grandfather, Navy, World War II, dad, Vietnam, me dancing around in the eighties in Frankfurt and Germany. And then reenlisted and went right back to Germany. It was mm-hmm. awesome. I had a good record collection over there but it was all peacetime but my dad was in vietnam my mom moved us we were she went up to virginia to be close to where his parents were they were fucked up so she came back to the south kind of brokenhearted because she was montessori school teacher so i went to school for two years before kindergarten i still remember the shit i did in those classes Mm -hmm. my mom's like i still have your stuff so we went to the south and then you know went back there and then 
stayed there because my dad came back from Vietnam. My mom was like, what the fuck? Like, he was out of his mind. He did four tours. Four in the tours? Four. And how long is each tour? I was like, wow, is either mom is really annoying or this dude's patriotic as fuck. Mm-hmm. So, or there was something, you know, that thing that just needs to be in the middle of where it's all happening. I, I don't know. Because, you know, when I think when parents separate and divorce, and, you know, me, my mom's raising me and my two brothers. I have a brother who's 11 months younger, which is mm-hmm. kind of fucking horrible when you think about it. <laughs> I was like, the fuck were you thinking, mom? She's like, months. I loved your dad. I was like, apparently, constantly. Yeah. And then I got another brother, five years younger. So my mom raised three of us and you know typical southern poverty thank god her sister helped us get a house or it would have been there weren't a lot of trailers there's a few trailers and on james island but but not many and mm-hmm. all of those people end up murdered or inbred or shit like that so i just grew up kind of bewildered because i'd been up to virginia my, my mom had taken us to like the the smithsonian so i remember seeing like Rodin's Gates of Hell, which is this giant bronze. Right. Giant. I still remember the staircase because you had to come in from like the second floor and go down to it. It's the guy who created the sculpture of the thinker. Mm-hmm. And the Gates of Hell, I believe, is every piece that he'd ever done incorporated into these giant, like 20, 30 feet tall. I was probably five or six when I saw it. So I'd had this glimpse of what education was and then back down into poverty where you know we're all just like staring at shit and poking mm-hmm. things with sticks and touching <laughs> stuff i mean i mean know. what you do as kids just run around and like you know shoot snakes and stuff or you know play around I at the beach didn't fuck with guns that much but we were right by a beach so i turned into like a skater and a surfer and like uh-huh. long-haired like skater dude and surfer and the, the ocean's beautiful it's warm it's lovely it's a great place and all the creeks are good. Like, nature's beautiful down there. The people aren't so beautiful. And, you know, I, I really didn't connect with everybody. I liked sports. I did all that stuff. But, you know, that's where we grew up, playing baseball. Mm-hmm. There's a YMCA right up the street from us. So, and when do, uh, when do drugs and alcohol start to enter <clears throat> the picture? I can tell you exactly. My cousin, who had also been in Vietnam with my dad... I grew up across the street from an aunt and uncle who had six kids, my first cousins, literally across the street. And one night my mom was doing something and had one of the uncles babysit. And him and his brother came over and they were like smoking weed and drinking. I was 12 years and nine months old. We were watching, I remember what was on the TV. We were watching this movie called Valley of the Gwangi where these cowboys or chasing a, a steer or something, and they uh-huh. go in between this rock thing, and it's like Jurassic Park. And they're like, oh, shit, a T-Rex. I remember watching that. And they were like, hey, you know, I you want to sip one. a beer? It's fucking awesome. It's on Netflix or Hulu now. I watch that shit all the time. Uh-huh. I love shit like that. They, uh, I remember they had a beer, and they were like, hey, you know, have a sip. And it was like, okay, you know, and like, you know, a little joint. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, I was already smoking cigarettes at like 12 and a half. So, you know, pot, it just looked like the poorest cigarette on earth. You're right. just like, oh, that doesn't look like a cigarette. And I remember drinking that, 
then later on, like nothing spectacular happened. But it was, did you have that moment where you're like, oh man, this is what I've been looking for? And did it, was it? Was Not it, until like three months later when I was hanging out with one of my cousins. She had a boyfriend. We were all hanging out at the beach and they went somewhere to do something. And I remember this guy's name, Dirk. I have no idea where he is, but he opened up this little wooden box and it had dry ice in it and this little smoke. And it had like a dragon or something on it. And I grew up really poor. So still to this day, like shiny shit. You're like, oh, what is that? It was a neat box. And he opened it up and like little smoke came out because there was dry ice in it. And he had a syringe and a bunch of these bags of powder. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I saw him like fix something up and like shoot it up. And then he fixed it up again. He's like, stick your arm out. And I was like, boom. And then I was like, holy shit. I remember... It was awesome. It should have been a sign of like... Was that, so it was Coke or heroin? I still don't know what it is because in the South, we have drugs that you're not going to hear about on the news because we're mm-hmm. all poor and stupid. I right. mean, it could have been like meth, meth. Well, it was, they called it tea, like the letter T. So there was peanut butter tea, chocolate tea, and crystal tea because I really explored it after <laughs> that first time. And it was this real clean high... Yeah, if you haven't taken drugs, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. But it was kind of like mescaline. And mescaline in the South where we did it, it's got um, strychnine in it. So you trip good. But at 3 in the morning, you get these terrible stomach pains from Mm. strychnine poisoning. But you work through that. So it was like mescaline with a little bit of weed and a little bit of liquor on it. It was great. I just went out. I surfed all day. Like the sun was beautiful. you're like 12? This happens. I just, it was the weekend I turned thirteen. Right, Thir- just turned thirteen. Yeah, barely any experience with drugs or alcohol, and you got a needle in your arm. Yeah, and it That's was like fucking awesome. But the fix is in, right? <laughs> you have this amazing experience. Oh yeah. I mean, was it like, all right, when am I doing that again? Oh yeah, yeah. It was just mm-hmm. like, oh, that was awesome. Like inherently, I knew. Well, we're not going to do that at Thanksgiving dinner in front of the family. Mm-hmm. But it was like, I'm not not going to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, there was no shame or weird. It was just amazing. It was like, wow, that was great. Because I smoked a little weed and drank a little bit. Everybody was getting into... Quaaludes were huge. And then lemon ludes hit the street. And second all and tuna. All this downer mm-hmm. stuff, which I wasn't a big fan of. I took it all. But I wasn't a big fan of so it. It started like, killing all of my friends. So this must have been like 1975. 75, 75 76, uh-huh. okay. 77, yeah. I was born in 62, so 13, yeah, 75, 76. Right. Spirit of America. I, know, I still remember the bicentennial. All right, so anyway, where does it, where does it start to ramp up and, and begin creating problems for you? Um, well, high school took a dismal turn. I just, I would go to school early in the morning if I got up on time and just, smoke weed with my other friends before school. And I'd always take these fucking hard classes first period, like biology and algebra. And it was just like, I was so stoned. Uh-huh. I'm like, biology was cool because I could look at like pot leaves under the microscope. <laughs> but that's such a Spicoli maneuver. It was so weird, but that's what I would do. And at night I started finding out in downtown Charleston some of my friends from high school were going out to the dance clubs and it was just a free for all. I mean, there were just drugs everywhere in the seventies, everywhere in the early eighties. 
And like nobody was getting sick with AIDS or anything. Nobody knew what that shit was. So it was just like every club was awesome. And a lot of my friends, I found, I mean, my two brothers never did. But my, I found all the other people who took drugs. So I got introduced and like learned mm -hmm. quickly and realized I had a taste for amphetamines and speed cocaine mainly. Right. Which I love because it's just like, oh, awesome. And, and it's, like, so it's, this is the, and, this is the phase where everything's working. Oh, it was fantastic. It works, right. Yeah. And so, you know, is this bringing you like, what is the, you know, what is the, the disease that this is easing for you? That's beneath, you know, like that's beneath the drug use that is like at the core of, you know, Chris Davis, the kid. I always had this odd feeling that I, I didn't fit in. And later, years later, when I got out of South Carolina, because I joined the military, I'd left for a very long time. I came back and nothing had changed. And then years later, then I moved to California. And then I got a perspective. I was like, oh, I was right the whole fucking time, but there's no way, I didn't have the coping skills or the dialogue or the intellect to express that or process it. Mm -hmm. So it was just like, you're like the kid with three arms hanging out at the pool party. You know, it's just like, people are like, well, maybe if we're playing volleyball, we'll talk to you. But short of that, like just stand over there by the tree. It was just that weird. I don't know if it, it, it I, I think it's self ostracized when you're ostracized. Yeah, I can't use right. long words. So it was one of those self-imposed, self-imposed, which I learned down the road is the ego. It's like a beautiful, clear bubble. And a lot of people are like, yeah, use your ego. And I found out it's the most dangerous thing in the world to me because it puts this clear bubble around me and I can see and hear everything, but I am literally disconnected and separate from everything on earth. Mm -hmm. And drugs bridge that gap. Drugs made me not aware of it. I didn't give a fuck. It didn't fix any of that shit. Mm -hmm. It just, it made my bubble comfortable, I guess. I didn't notice it. Mm -hmm. It just distracted me from like, oh, yeah. So you ride this out through high school. Do you go to college or do you go right into the military? Well, my third year in ninth grade <laughs> <laughs> in the South, uh -huh. which I believe makes me retarded on, a, <laughs> on an education level or very special education. My third year in ninth grade, I was sitting in a car with my buddy, Jimmy. I won't use his last name. I think he's dead, but he had one eye. And his left eye was out, and we were sitting in his car smoking weed, just like fucking Spicoli in the van. And the fucking principal of the school walked up on Jimmy's blind side mm -hmm. and just opened the door and looked at us. You know, Jimmy's like, <laughs> right. I was just like, and he's like, come with me, guys. And he walked us over to the office, and him and Jimmy went in the office, and I just fucking walked home. I was like, I'm done. I'm done. I went home, told my mom I quit school. It was like, I don't know what to do. And then I got this weird idea to join the army. So I had to take my GED, which How old I passed. Are you? are you already 18 at this no, point? No, no, I was 17. My mom had to give me permission. <laughs> she was pissed because she's like, you're just like your father. And I'm like, okay. Uh -huh. I, it, it's weird for a child to hear that because you're like, and what, what was your relationship with your dad at this time? I mean, was he oh, gone? He was gone. He disappeared. I, I right. hadn't seen that dude ever. 
So four tours in Vietnam and then divorced and then just out of the picture. Yeah, and, and he just disappeared up into D.C. or Virginia around uh -huh. where his and parents And to this day, you don't have any relationship with Oh, no, with we, we, he showed up. My middle brother, who's like an awesome dude, family guy, community guy, like really helps. I, I don't know where he gets it from. But he tracked him down when he had his first kid and he wanted to go track down my dad and tracked him down. My dad had started calling me in the early 90s, but I was just like, whatever, dude. Like, I got nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of blamed him, probably rightfully so, for growing up in poverty. But I realized everybody around me was just as poor. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't a big deal. But for some reason, that stuff, I'm really super hypersensitive to that. Like, I, I don't know if I inherited it from my parents or if it was the ego at play, but I used to be super hypersensitive to people around me and would kind of just basically turn into like a piece of background furniture. Right, just withdraw. Not to get attention, yeah, because mm -hmm. it's just weird. I couldn't even take a, I mean, I used to jaywalk all the time because I couldn't handle going across at a crosswalk when the light was in my favor. But the drugs and alcohol probably brought you out of that shell a little bit, allowed you to like sort of maneuver, yeah, maneuver yeah. socially. Didn't even bother me. And once I got in the army, like I said, I showed up. It was awesome. I showed up in Birdwell's flip-flops, some ripped up fucking like Hobie t-shirt or something, uh -huh. or Led Zeppelin shirt or something that had just been ripped to shreds. I show up, I got hair like halfway down my fucking back. They shave our heads. Actually, yeah, they shave our heads. They don't give is us army? The army. army. So I go to Fort Jackson, which is 70 miles from my fucking house. And I'm uh -huh. like, oh, awesome. They mix some shit up. They send me and these two other kooky dudes out to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri on a fucking bus. We get out, it's freezing cold. I've never been in freezing weather, really. In the rain, we're standing outside. They're already pulling all this army shit on us. And we're like, dude, we're not even fucking in yet. So we're out in the rain. We go on this trailer. We go through a day of this getting like introduced. In, and then they're just like, you fuckers are supposed to be in South Carolina. So back on the bus, still damp. Uh -huh. Back to South Carolina. We get to South Carolina. It's fucking hot and humid, which I love. But after being in the freezer section for a while, then they put me in the fucking the food warming lamp we were in there getting sworn in i passed out like i guess i from exhaustion and pneumonia and i woke up you know like a dent on my head and uh-huh and that was my introduction to the army like already i was like oh there's scheduling conflicts going on in here. <laughs> uh, this a is a little bureaucratic I thought, confusion i thought and, they'd uh, be organized yeah. like there's one me I have right one so this Social is like a Security. foreshadowing of your army experience to be my to fucking become, life right? basically so, just right like, and then you end up like how long before they send you over you were in germany for a long time right yeah i went in they got me sorted out at fort um jackson ironically where i was born too so I'm never going to go back there because I was born there. I went into the army there. Mm -hmm. I exited the army there. I figure out if things play out the next time I'm there, I'm dead. So I'm just going right. <laughs> to skip Fort Jackson. I'll drive through Columbia. It's in the middle of the state. But I, I joined the army. I went to basic training there. I loved it. It was summer. It was hot as fuck. Like dudes from Missouri were dying. They were yelling at me to like get out of the sun with my sleeves up, but I just grew up in that 
did that. They sent me to um, what they call AIT, which is school. Turns out I was kind of smart. So I got on this uh, radar system called the ANTPQ-37 Firefinder Radar, which is still in existence. And the class they told, I was like, this is fucking bullshit. This is like Star Trek bullshit. But it really did work. It was Hughes Aircraft put it together. and uh, Or McDonnell Doug. I think it was Hughes Aircraft. They all buy each other, but it was one of those. I went out to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, and did my training. And then after that, they sent me to Germany, which was just fucking awesome. Right, so you're like a crazy bachelor in Germany, running around, going to all the clubs, just letting loose and i'm even though i'm from a very regional segregated racist uneducated redneck getting high i got turned on to of course leonard skinner which i fucking still love to this day and zeppelin even though they were from england which is the mortal enemy of the united states which (laughs) the heart of the u.s is the south according Uh to us um then I got turned on to Hendrix because I was doing a lot of acid and psychedelics. Then I got turned on to New Wave because I was going into the city and a couple of my friends from high school were gay, so we were going to gay bars, which just had the best music in the world. So Devo, the B-52s, all this stuff. So when I landed in Europe, it was just like, here's the club. Right. You have your ID. You have money. You already got a fucked up haircut like everyone else in Europe in the 80s. So come on in it was it was fantastic uh-huh it was fantastic and how so how long were you living there the first time i was stationed there for a, over a couple of years i learned to speak german quickly mm-hmm. and fluently because i started looking around and i realized the dudes in the barracks on the weekends they would just take off their shirt that had their name tag on it and their rank and just stay in everything else take their boots off mm-hmm. and they're just in like green and brown t-shirts, green socks, you know, their fucking green pants. And until Monday morning, they'd put on their shirt. And I was like, oh, these dudes never leave. Like, so I started like catching the trains. I had, I think the second night I was there, (coughs) it was around Christmas. And in Germany, they do this thing where they scrape all the, the beer breweries, they scrape all the, something out whatever they fuck them they make beer in and they come out with the stuff called like doppelbach which is like it should say black death poison beer right because it's just the goo that sits at the bottom uh, but like super they concentrated have like triple bach mm-hmm. so i'm in the barracks it's like my second day there i remember everybody had their own stereo it's like 16 of us in a room half this size everybody's got a reel-to-reel a turntable a tape deck Everybody's listening to like Billy Squire, the Scorpions, all this shit. I'm the new guy. I got my little bunk. They're all drinking. We're smoking cigarettes. And like, you know, I remember taking two sips off of this thing. And then I come to, I'm half naked. I still don't know if I'm getting into bed or getting out of bed with this smoking hot German girl. It's completely naked. Like, I don't know where I am. I don't speak a word of German. I've been in the country two days. <laughs> but she seems cool. I seem cool. Nobody's bleeding. Nobody's fighting. You hear all this noise in the front, and I'm like, 
you know, pull my pants back up, put my shirt on. I go out. There's a dude on the fire escape shooting a shotgun off in the air because it's around New Year's Eve. And I was like, I'm familiar with shotguns because I was like, oh, these guys are like my people. And there's like 15 people in the living room. I had no fucking idea where I was. And I was, turned out, like three miles away from the barracks. Uh I don't know who these people were. I just kind of excused myself, made it back. I didn't know what barracks I was in. I made it back to my barracks. And I stumbled back in the room, and I'm like, where the fuck did I go? And they're like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm the new guy. And they're like, we don't fucking know. Uh It was like. That was like the second night in Germany. Right. And it pretty much stayed like that. Like, awesome clubs. Hey, how'd I get here? Got my shoes, got my watch. And peacetime. So it's not like, I mean, what what does the army have you doing? Well, we trained on the radar all the time. Like, we would go out and do war games, (laughs) ironically, for a month at a time. And just train and just work on it and, like, it's a lot of training. You just train and train and train for uh-huh. the inevitable going to war. Right. But it was the Cold War that was going on. So we would sit, you know, go check out the border of Czechoslovakia. It was a whole communist thing. And all of us in Europe were aware, like America and Russia, were going to bomb the fuck out of each other with nukes. So. Yeah, this is, this is mid-Cold you War. You cannot comprehend. It is so much stress to know that like all the clubs were full and if you really listen to a lot of new wave and post-punk dance music it was like we knew we're gonna get melted you can't stop these fucking power mongers and these egomaniacs from battling each other you know yeltsin and fucking reagan and these fucking weird guys who are like and we just knew we're gonna catch the fallout and just get nuked into the ground so we were like you know, so the punk gonna, rockers were like, change the government. Like it's 1999. And the new wave guys were like, yeah. well, fuck it. We're going to melt. So I'll just be dancing around Depeche Mode and <laughs> New Order. You right. know, and all of that music, it's fucking doom and gloom. Mm-hmm. There's really a lot of doom and gloom in there. But it's like, well, if you're going to get melted, don't sit around gloomy. Just fucking dance around. To you. It's got a good beat. You're like, uh-huh. fuck it. Coming back for more, but first. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well-being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media.
There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. So let's accelerate this uh, addiction snowball to, uh, to you know, where it all kind of meets its maker. Because you went through the ringer pretty, pretty intensely. Like, it got pretty dark. Number of times. But I could always pull myself out. I had no idea what was going on. It was just status quo for me. It was like, you know, felt alone my whole life. So I kind of was alone my whole life. I had, like, really nice supportive girlfriends. My family was always supportive, but... You know, to me, it just got annoying and interfering. Like, they felt like nosy busybodies. Because like I said, I'm really hypersensitive. So, burned a friend for coke, not in a large amount, in South Carolina. I went back to South Carolina after the Army. I had saved a ton of money. I'd bought my first car. I had a, when I re-enlisted, they gave me a fucking fortune. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, because... Everybody who went into my MOS, that's your job for this radar, they split after two years. They were there for college money. College should never, I was like, I'm never going to college. Mm -hmm. It's for rich people. It never occurred to me to try to save. So I bought like, my first car was like the Trans Am from Smokey and the Bandit. Uh It was awesome. And I remember driving at home, seeing my mom, my grandfather, her dad was at our house because we had all left. He had cancer and he was dying, so my mom was taking care of him. And I drove home to see her, and I was in my army uniform, and I got out of the car, and my mom was crying. I'm like, oh, it's so good to see you too. And she kept crying. I was like, what's going on? She's like, that car, it's it's so white trash. And I just like looked around <laughs> James Island, like, <laughs> where do we live? Oh, yeah. You- oh, I should have parked it behind the castle. <laughs> like little shit like that, I remember, because it's literally felt like I mean I just felt like the biggest pussy all the time because shit like that would fucking cut me to the quick literally Mm -hmm. and it was like I had no way to process it it's like oh another wound to deal with and it was just like you know I just learned for years just to take my licks and keep moving you know Mm -hmm. like that weird sad kid in a movie like you know everybody's bullying him and then some other kid hits him in the head with a rock the hero doesn't come out of the Disney movie and beat everybody up. You just kind of walk away with like a swolly, bloody eye and, and you just deal with it. And you go to a new town and you hope mm-hmm. they're not going to be like that. And of course, the nature of that is, you know, kick dogs get kicked. Mm-hmm. It You seem to bring that out in people. So it's really kind of a weird thing. But I got out of the army, went home to South Carolina. Nothing had changed. Burned some people for coke, had to split, had a girlfriend who moved to California, was moving. We were going to move together. Then she got bummed out when I ripped off one of her friends for coke. That was a whole drama. Not a big episode, but annoying. 
So I convinced her to let me come out with her. She was horrified by how much weight I'd lost when I showed up. And I'd like ripped somebody off, wrote a bad check for a plane ticket, flew out. And, you know, we tried to, she really tried to make the best of it. We moved to Long Beach and I just like collapsed. I left her. She found a big bag of syringes. She had no idea I even got mm -hmm. high. She found so all these syringes. So you were doing the IV thing. Was that going on the whole time? Not in the army. I realized they couldn't drug test you for LSD. So I tripped all the time, but I wouldn't fuck with pot or mm -hmm. drugs. But when you ever. got out of the army, then back to the needle? Well, when I got out of the army, I could drink so much. The night I got out, I went out to a bar with my friends and I drank 24 Budweiser's and was like, had to pee all the time and wasn't buzzed and was really annoyed. So I started drinking liquor. 24, 24 beers, no buzz. Nothing, nothing. I'd been in Germany. Uh -huh. I mean, yeah, you're used to the triple it's lock. It's super the... strong over there. And I didn't realize, I never thought I had a drinking problem at all because it's legal. They showed magazines, TV, people, famous people do it. Everybody I know does it. Everybody does it. It just, I never saw a red flag. So I got wasted that night, like really drunk. And my friend was like, dude, you got to do some Coke if you're going to drink like that. And I was like, so I did a couple bumps and That's was some like, good thinking. oh, <laughs> and then immediately was shooting drugs again within a half an hour. It was like, oh, good, back. Right. So that, and then I brought that with me out to California. And then my girlfriend and I separated because, you know, when you're dating a girl and who, you take drugs, you yeah. the girlfriend's the fucking mistress. Like she lives in the other neighborhood, my priority. I never knew this. I learned all this stuff later, but you know, I had to split. She's like, what are you doing with these needles? And I was like, do not throw that shit away. Mm -hmm. Went, got it, got my bag, found an apartment down the road from her. And then just, you know, I could get jobs quick. You know, I know how to charm. I use my ex-military. I'll use whatever tacky thing I have to for self-preservation. So I did that. I was doing good. Then I started smoking crack, which that shit was awesome. It was, mm -hmm. I know it gets a lot of bad publicity but holy <laughs> shit <laughs> that stuff was amazing did that like kind of qualitatively like change things i mean that's what i hear with i've never it done destroyed, crack destroyed it completely destroyed me my life my mind my body in probably five months uh-huh i just smoked Super it non-stop it was amazing such an amazing high. I, I never saw the effects it was having on me. Like, I'd just smoke all day long. I'd go to work. I got a job. I won't say which company, but building airplanes for the military. <laughs> union job, ex-military. Easy union, lots of money. Pay all my bills. Never paid my bills. Lived in an apartment. Got so cracked out. Like, I moved out of my apartment because when I would smoke crack in there, in between going to work and nothing else. If I'd smoke crack in the bathroom, I'd hear all these people in my living room. So I'd go out there and it wasn't a huge apartment and they'd split. So then I'd smoke in the living room and somehow they'd get in the bathroom, right. even though I lived on the ninth floor, uh -huh. no fire escapes. And after about six yeah. days of that, I got, friends I got so aggravated. Up. I'm like, I gotta get the <laughs> fuck out of here. It's so loud. Like crack-induced so. psychosis. So I dipped. I just moved out behind my... Well, I went out to take a walk, which 
lasted for months. <laughs> uh-huh. And I just, I would go into my apartment every six or seven weeks to bathe because I would just get really offensive and like, and I just went, I went super duper 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 crazy, crazier than I had ever been from too much acid or lack of sleep or coke or pills. So you have or, this apartment, but you're literally just walking around in the streets and like sleeping on the sidewalk or well, what are you I doing? Would, no, I would sleep usually on a bench by the public library in Long Beach. I don't want to be tacky. I don't want to lay on the sidewalk. There's <laughs> bugs and shit. So, like bench dude. I'd go to the library and I'd read the German newspapers because I learned to speak and read German because I didn't want to be like the other bums, even though I was, I mean, I'd uh-huh. look like something that came out of a, a fucking landfill. It was unreal. And I was so skinny, I kept putting on more layers of clothes. Look awesome. I just uh-huh. looked like a fucking scarecrow. That and how long, how long did this go on for? Probably about five months. The whole time I was doing crack. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Crazy. And then I started seeing neat shit on the street. And after a while, you can only carry so much stuff. So that is why homeless people push shopping carts. Because there's so much cool shit to pick up uh-huh. when you're out of your mind. <laughs> and like the sun hits it and you're like, shiny mine. Uh-huh. So I started acquiring things. So you're stuff actually I to pushing, you're a pushing a shopping cart around. Well, I was strolling with one. It didn't uh-huh. feel like pushing. Pushing sounds like <laughs> okay. a lot of effort right, and yeah. work. God forbid. Just... I don't want to mischaracterize this. <laughs> <laughs> I just, you know, had my stuff with me. Uh-huh. Well, I had other people's stuff that was now mine. And you have and... any friends at this point who are trying to, you know, intervene a little bit? I mean, there must be there people was... in your life who are starting Yeah, to I had one friend out. who was really trying to help me out. Didn't understand what had happened to me. Invited me over for dinner. I stole his mom's checkbook and wrote thousands of dollars of bad checks. Mm-hmm. But I would write checks to people I smoked crack with for like $860. And I'd be like, go cash this. And I'd write it out in their name, mm-hmm. forge it. They'd go to the bank and cash it, and I'd give them $40. Mm-hmm. And then they all started getting arrested for <laughs> bad checks. Oh, oh, my God. Yeah, I wasn't raised to be that guy. It's just, I would help, you know. We'd all make like homeless signs to go out, but I was too, you know, shy <laughs> to stand out there on the corner with a sign. So I would write signs for everybody, like "Please help." But I would always spell words wrong just to uh-huh. make them look like, you know, idiot. <laughs> it was. It was. Weird. And how does this, you know, where does this end end up? Like, how does it play out? This is only I going went, in one direction. Yeah, to awesome town. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> one day. Reagan had shut all the mental health facilities down and they were dumping crazy people, legitimately mentally ill people mm-hmm. onto the streets by the score. And is this like, what, what year are we talking about? This like 86 or something? 89, all right. 89. And there were fucking homeless people everywhere around Long Beach. And I was one, but I felt like a part-time one. I remember I was shooting speed and I was like... By choice. You had an apartment. It's very strange. Right. But it was annoying. And I also had this other thing that developed where I wouldn't go into the sun under any circumstances. I didn't think I was a vampire. I love the cure, but I'm not goth. Uh But something just said, dude, don't go in the sun. So I would have to... Luckily, there were tall buildings around my area in Long Beach. So I would have to wait for the sun to make a shadow to cross certain streets. Oh, this is like and, weird OCD thing going on. I don't, that's uh-huh. a nice way of calling 
completely fucking insane. But, right. Uh, oh, he had OCD. So that's what I turned into, this guy who would just, like, hide in the shadows. I was freezing all the time. I didn't realize how skinny I was. But I felt my body start to fall apart, like, really bad. And one day I was shooting speed, just sitting on the curb, like, you know, shooting speed, looking at all these homeless guys across the street, and I'm like, I'm going to pretend every homeless guy in Long Beach is like an undercover federal agent. And even though I had said, oh, this is what I'm going to do today, because when you're insane, you have to think of fun projects to do. <laughs> Otherwise, the days just get boring. Uh -huh. Even though I knew I did that, I couldn't reel back, going, oh, I'm just pretending. So I had a really terrible day, because there were like 45 homeless dudes in my mm -hmm. area. And I That's a common thing, though. When you start doing that volume of drugs, you start to think there's people. You, you, you develop that paranoia where you think people are out to get you or whether they're undercover agents or otherwise. I'd seen a lot of people do it. And sometimes when I was really high, I would get a sense of like, oh, that paranoia is going to come on. I never really suffered from it. But I saw other people do it. So I'm like, oh, I'm going to try that. I'm going to pretend. But this time I literally felt, I don't know how to explain it any other way, but if you took like... Remember those big, uh, giant satellite balloons they used to send up? Mm -hmm. Those big, clear kind of looking ones? I felt like that was my mind, and it had gotten a rip, and it started tearing, and I couldn't... Because I've always been about, like, how far can I go? Like, I've done enormous amounts of LSD and, like, read books and gone hiking and done adventures and surfed and really pushed it. But this time, I was like, oh, no, I've, I've gone... Past the point of no return. Way into Crazyville. Uh -huh. Like, not only is there not a guardrail, my car doesn't have brakes, and I have just gone through over the edge at like 97 miles an hour. It's 3,000 feet down, and there's not a drop of water. Mm -hmm. It's like rocks. And I felt like that for about two weeks. And I got over the, the feds. That thing calmed down after a couple of days. But I would stay up for like eight or nine days at a time doing this stuff. So it was getting a little weird. But I sat down and I went to do something. I went to turn. It was turn. getting a little weird. It was getting a little <laughs> weird for me. Yeah. So I remember I sat down. I, I, I went to go get my crack pipe and I turned. If you haven't grown up in the woods, I don't know if you'll get this reference. But when woods are really, really thick, like small pine trees about this big around, basically. Like six inches. Like, in like the. the yeah, the width of like a paper towel roll or smaller, half a paper towel roll. Those trees, some of them die, but if there's other trees holding them up, they look like a tree, but you can, it looks like a living tree, but you can hit it and it literally disintegrates into, it's just sawdust basically. Mm -hmm. And I went over to reach for my crack pipe and I felt that happen to me inside. And I was like, oh no, I'm going to die. So... I called my mom. I was like, because that's what all tough guys do. Right. Called my mom, and I was like, um, I've been smoking crack. I'm not really. I, I was like telling crazy shit every week if they would, if I'd answer the phone, which I do all the time, and then be all conflicted. And in a hospital, I was telling somebody that. They're like, just don't answer the phone. And I was like, shit, that never occurred to me. 
Like so my mom, they I were checking in with you and you would answer the phone and tell some crazy story about yeah. some, you know, working on fighter jets or, you know, <laughs> right. Shit. The same crazy shit my dad used to do, uh -huh. which is weird. Oh, I'm working for the CIA. I'm like, no, you're wasted and you wrecked your car. That wasn't an undercover operation. Like you're just drunk. So I called and I was like, I got to go to a hospital because I'm going to die. Not mm -hmm. like I need to get better. Or I have to stop. Like I just. I was like, okay, 27, peaked. Had a pretty good adventure, you know. Bought like one of the very first copies of Blue Monday when it came out on vinyl, you mm -hmm. know. Met Freddie Mercury when I was doing 32 hits of acid. In Germany? And, yeah, this giant gay bar. We used to go to this giant gay bar and buy sheets of acid, 100 sheets of blotter acid, and then sell in the barracks for an enormous profit. Uh-huh. But I liked acid, too. And... Yeah, the same night I met Freddie Mercury, I had no idea the dude was gay, and I had no idea he had a British accent. Yeah, it's it the funniest thing, because when you look back on it now, it's like the band's called Queen. He's wearing, like, leather chaps. He's got that must, like, the whole package is there. No but idea. But at the time, like, culturally, it didn't, you didn't do that math for some reason. And also, <laughs> you know, meeting like, somebody at that level uh -huh. was fucking unheard of. Unless they did a press interview and the cameras were always right, way there was back, no so yeah, you, you, there was no the average person was so disconnected from a, yeah. from a celebrity, right? Yeah, so. and to like actually meet this guy and the guy I was with was the chaplain of the base where I was stationed, his driver. Who so was, wait, hold on a second. You went to the gay bar in Frankfurt with the chaplain, the chaplain's driver, oh, who was okay. like right. the gayest <laughs> dude in the army. And I was like, <laughs> right. I you know I'd had gay friends growing up, you know, since middle school. Like, it wasn't a big deal to me. and But, you know, Mark, he kept his, you know, his uniform he was He kept good. it locked down. Yeah. Uh -huh. And, you know, he borrowed the chaplain's, you know, nowadays, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. It's not like, oh, military, there's no gay dudes in there. There were, like, tons of them. But we would go up to this bar because he knew where to get it, and, like, I'd get the money. We'd do this. I met Freddie Mercury. I'd done, I realized I'd taken eight hits of Superman. It was called Ubermensch, blotter acid. Because you, it's called Eight a four-way because you tear a piece of a square into four and you take one. Uh huh. And corner. you took eight. Well, I would just peel them and play with them, and, <laughs> and I looked All down. Right. And I started counting. I was like, "That was a fun night that I made through. That was good." I also, what did Freddie some, say to you? Well, my friend was like, "I want to marry him," and I'm like, "He's a guy. Like, can you get married?" Like, I didn't know. I'm uh -huh. part of me was like super naive. You're in a gay me, bar, though. But you don't know that Freddie Mercury's gay. Right, okay. I mean, who would know that? <laughs> I mean, a giant gay, this place held 5,000 people. Right, like a the, massive club. The, the DJ booth was a fire truck. Uh-huh. A whole fire wow. truck, not painted on the wall, like right. a whole. It was, it was That's gigantic. That's good times, man. And my friend was like, oh, let's run down and meet him. But uh, I'll tell you this, this was incredible. He walked in wearing like a, a black mink stole. I think that's what it's called. Like the long, long, long dress. Oh, a coat with like a cape? Like a coat with a right. cape. That was like 40 feet long with all of the... This is way before bodybuilders. This is like 82, 83. Uh-huh. These fucking like 30 dudes all fucking... Super I don't ripped. know if there were steroids back then, but just giant dudes in little white shorts and little wife beaters, but big ass motherfuckers carrying... The thing right, when he came entourage. in, he had a big. It, it looked like a chick who was the Wicked Witch uh -huh. in Snow White.
but with a little leather cap on and then you know took it off and a <laughs> little mustache and like shorts that and, is so amazing so my buddy ran us down there and was like oh i need to talk to freddie mercury and these big german i was like wow we're gonna get beat to death by these uh-huh. but they let us in the circle i was high as shit but when he spoke i was just like oh he's from england mm-hmm. and i was like yeah my buddy wants to marry you mm-hmm. i go we're in the army so i don't know if he has time to do that and it was like <laughs> and that was the extent of it, it right. wasn't like oh here's why i wrote this song chris i was out of my fucking mind all right so back to mom <clears throat> you're at the end you tell your mom I've been smoking crack. Then, because I still held a job, and it was a union job, I was like, well, I'll go to the hospital. I'll die. I have insurance. They'll cover the shipping and FedEx me home or whatever. And then, according to my people, I'm going to go live with Jesus and grow corn and mm-hmm. shit. I don't know what the fuck I'm And you're like for. 26 I'm at done. this point 27. Or 27. Uh-huh. Fried. So, everything went wrong. These people were like, oh, we're going to put you in this outpatient thing. And I was like, they're like, you need to be here at like 10 a.m. and to keep my job. And I was like, I don't know where I'm going to be in 30 minutes. Like, mm-hmm. I tried to get to see some psychiatrist. They'd be like, they took me four weeks to make a 9.30 a.m. appointment. And I had to get to the place at like 5 in the morning. And I remember eating in this Denny's. I had a little money. I was eating in Denny's. And everybody just looked at me like, it was a piece of shit. And I felt it. I knew it wasn't like, oh, I'm being sensitive. They were looking at me like, and I met this shrink, and I was like, dude, I'm smoking crack. I'm a, and I'd stolen some book. I think it was about Marco Polo doing the, when he originated the Saffron Trail. And the guy's like, you can't be an addict. You're reading that book. And I was like, well, yeah, it's a great book, but I stole it, and I was like, I'll be right back. And went in the bathroom and smoked crack, came out, and they're like. That's, that's so funny because usually it would be the patient saying, I'm not an addict because I'm reading this book. And the doctor saying, no, that's irrelevant. Yeah, I was like, you know, I'm in trouble. The, and the yeah. guy's like, well, you're not addicted to it. You wow. just, you know, and I, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I think it was all supposed to work out the way it did. But I finally made my way into the hospital. The guy who my company contacted some cab driver. He looked as bad as I did. I kept trying to get him to stop for crack on the way to this Uh hospital and he wouldn't do it. He's a dick. And we got to the hospital and we got off the elevator and some staff started walking toward us and I go, watch him, he's a little squirrely because I walked ahead of him and they went to grab him. (laughs) Mm -hmm. He got really mad. And I was like, I'm just kidding. I'm the guy. I didn't know it was a detox or a drug rehab or I'd never even heard of that shit so they looked at me I talked with a couple doctors people were kind of open about taking drugs I asked them if they had any they all laughed like oh we don't take them anymore and I'm like oh it's a bummer they gave me like half of an Ativan which Ativan is just simply Valium became so destructive for so many years they just moved a molecule around and now they call it Ativan. So they gave me that, which is half a Valium. Knocked me out. I figured I'd die. And I woke up the next day with no plan B. And then guys were like, hey, we have a problem kind of like you do and we'll help you. And after I expressed in really derogatory and racist terms about the quality of people that were in my room that they should leave, a couple of people hung around and they were like, you sad fucker, like we're gonna help you. Like. I didn't realize I was in trouble. I was like, okay, I'm gonna die. Mm-hmm. And then I didn't. 
So there wasn't no like plan it B. wasn't like you had this moment of willingness to you oh know, fuck no basically try to no. And what happened was they took problem. me to a couple of AA meetings, and I was like, wow, this is strange. Like you know, it was once again it was like upper middle class, nicely dressed people bragging about how well they did, and I was like, I don't relate. I don't want to. I'll never make it up to middle class, so, you know. Was there like a disappointment that you woke up? Like, now you're going to oh, have to live? Oh, dude, no plan B. That's really, it's like, oh. Now what am I I mean, you do? run if you went on, like, hiking 12 miles up a hill to go camping, and then you're like, oh, I forgot my backpack mm -hmm. with my food and shelter. <laughs> that, I was just like, wow, I have nothing. So it's almost like this, uh, you know, confusion about, you know, where you are, what you're going to do, what's the next right action. Yeah. Bewilderment. I mean, it was, it was sad. And then I remember this lady talking and she goes, if you're an addict or an alcoholic and you can call yourself whatever the fuck you want, but if you're anywhere near that shit, You'll be high before you even think about maybe you will or won't. And sure enough, that fucking happened that night. Some dude found some crack in his bag. My new roommate. And well, you didn't have you didn't have a desire to be sober <coughs> at that None. point. It seemed like a terrible idea. Uh -huh. I mean, I got the meth thing was getting a little out of hand, but you know, what pussy can't have a fucking beer? And then it was explained to me by these other guys who weren't pussies. Like, well. You, <laughs> mm -hmm. you had a beer. How did that work out? Where do you live currently? I'm like Long Beach. They were like, no, this week. I was like, oh, in a hospital. Uh huh. And they so were did like, that get you tossed out of one. there, or did that help, like, sort of shatter the denial and no, get you to the, that place of willingness? Well, I got high again. I remember this guy found some crack in his bag, and he's like, "What do I do?" And I'm like, "Give it to me." I was right across from the nurses' station. I grabbed a soda can. And I started, and I had a pen, and I started, I emptied the soda, and I started making a, a pipe. And while I was doing this, I remember clear as a bell going, how do I know how to make a pipe out of this? And I was like, maybe I saw it on cops, but I mean, this is happening in seconds. And I like, I'd asked him over and over, do you got any more, do you got any more? And he's like, well, my wife has an eight ball in the wheel well of the car, but she's not here till family day. And I was like, awesome, family day. Went in and like smoked it and got high just enough to get in the hospital. pissed off. Yeah, in my detox room. And I came out and I knew this guy didn't have any more. And when I opened the door, he looked mortified. Like I had just eaten a human being in front of him. I mean, he was like shocked. And I knew he didn't have any more. And the first thing out of my mouth was like, do you have any more? And something in me snapped like glass shattered. And I was like, oh, shit, this is just what that lady was talking about earlier. Like, I didn't even think this through. Like, I saw it. You know, I'm like a crocodile just, like, jumping just on a impulsively. fucking frog eating a fly. I'm like, there's no. And I was like, holy shit, I'm in trouble. And then I feebly, you know, asked some guys for help. And they were like, well, this is what we do. And I was like. God, that sounds stupid. And they were like, well, you're stupid, so it's a perfect match. So like, try it out. And the guys that helped me were just cool about it. And they were like, you're probably going to die. So, you know, I mean, look at you. You're a disaster, you know. Once they'd thrown all my clothes away, I weighed 130. So wow. one guy's like, dude, you're like a, someone stuck broomsticks in skin and is talking about the Civil War. Like, shut up. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you're like <coughs> probably, what are you right now? Like 175, 180, something like 193. that? 193. 193, yeah. So that's, yeah. that's a huge difference. <laughs> I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. We've known each other for a number of years, a couple of years at this point, and I've had the privilege and the opportunity to kind of see uh, you in action. And you're somebody who is tremendously of service, incredibly giving in this program, and also, you know, unbelievably articulate in how you um, speak about recovery in the way you kind of lend an, uh, an open hand to helping new people get introduced to these ideas. I try to emulate exactly what was handed to me. And the first thing was, was like a simple act of kindness. Like I still remember them. And this has been like over 26 years now. Remember it like I can look on my iPhone and see the picture of my daughter, like that clear. Like, oh yeah, that guy was like, hey, why don't you just give this a shot? Like, you know, when they said they were in recovery, I'm like, I never heard of that shit. Like I didn't never heard of rehab and like all Mm -hmm. that weird shit that's very commonplace now now right. it's like oh i went to coachella and then i went to rehab and right. it's like bragging rights right and it's, it's like, like having wheatgrass juice or something yeah exactly yeah. oh yeah i went to rehab and i was like oh great so you took up a bed for somebody who's probably going to die because you know it's basically become a lot of them have turned into and this is simply my opinion you know like parents who are like they don't know what the fuck bad parents and they're like here like they're sending them to summer camp right or or like like law school law school or rehab yeah i don't know what to do with my life law school's cheaper now yeah well there's you know sobriety (laughs) inc you know there's a lot of problem i mean we see look i live in malibu there's more rehabs like per capita in malibu than anywhere on the planet and these are real estate plays they're money making grabs and because it's very profitable to get a mansion fill it with a bunch of beds charge people an unbelievable amount of money per week or per month and staff it with people that you know maybe are okay maybe not and just house these people for a while and yeah. get them through 30 days and, and bank a bunch of you know checks. Which is also the same thing. If you look at this model, it's the same thing like Child Protective Services does now. Because all of these things used to be government supported. They all got destroyed in the 80s when they pulled all the funding. Same thing with mental health facilities mm-hmm. and like you know, the disabled. Like now all of, it's all private. It's all insurance. It's all profitable. And some of it's good. Look, I went to rehab, it saved my life. Like I'm not disparaging the idea, but I think there's a lot of- It is a business. And you know, I'm sure there are scumbags at Walmart and there are scumbags in the rehab world. There are scumbags on Wall Street and there Mm -hmm. are scumbags in 
McDonald's corporate. Like, you know, that element, you're always going to find somebody who gets greedy and figures out how to turn. You know, it's almost like just another insurance scam. And we live in L.A. I mean, remember there were all these people doing these staged fucking car accidents all the time. Right. And then like, oh, Mm -hmm. yeah, insurance claims. Like, there's always going to be somebody looking for a fast buck. Just here, it usually ends with a corpse. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, so I mean, it's kind of distasteful. Right, right. Well, there's you know this whole industry that's cropped out of, of of sobriety with all these ancillary ways of making a living. Like you can be a sober living companion, or you can work in a rehab, or you can rent a house and turn it into a sober sober living. You know, all these sorts of things that didn't. I mean, did this even exist 20 years ago? I saw an ad with like some dude from some kooky show from the 70s it's some satellite university of fill in the blank like and their big thing was like train to be a drug counselor Uh like you know work from home like that kind of shit (laughs) and it was just like are you fucking kidding Uh uh-huh it's like be a therapist online you know i'm like i guess if you can be a phone psychic you can work in a rehab what do you, what is the the difference between in your mind and the the difference between somebody who is able to grab onto sobriety and make it work and the person that falls by the wayside and just can't get it I, I don't know that's the billion dollar question I was lucky guys laid the thing out to me straight and they were like listen this is a really fucked up problem and it looks like 49 other problems but if you treat it like it's this one problem and treat it like it's life or death and do this stuff. And they're like, you know, we have to live a spiritual way of life. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, I'm from the South. Like, we don't do magic and all that fucking weird shit. And they were like, call it what you want, but try it. If it doesn't work, and, you know, I had nowhere to go. So how did you wrap your head around that spiritual component? I did it, and it fucking happened to me, which is weird. I didn't get saved or anything, but my entire mind got rearranged to where it worked and i was having problems with that so for me it just i'm able to do things that i wasn't able to do and i didn't go to class like i was still starving i still weighed 130 but something in me shifted and i can't explain it and people are like what happened to you i go i still don't know other than i was this way and now i'm that way but i remember clearly who i used to be and i'm nothing like that guy anymore but I can be if I take one drink, which a lot of people are like, oh, that's dramatic. I'm like, you want to see dramatic? Like, let's go out drinking. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it gets dramatic and then quick. When things go crazy, why don't you go, oh, I thought it was safe for you just to have one. I've watched people try that experiment. I won't. Mm-hmm. I, the, the good thing was when I had this weird shift, I was able to look back from that first time 12 years and nine months old to 13 and 14, 15. And I just saw example of example of example of example. Like that stuff is magic to me. And the reason it's magic to me and it's not magic to most of the people is I already had some kind of internal damage or some something like alcohol and drugs hit me the way they're not, they don't hit other people Mm -hmm. i still feel like when i watch people without this thing drink like they're getting ripped off i'm like they must be drinking water because 
I mean, I don't spend a lot of time doing that, but there's a huge difference between me and and I just don't put myself around people who are like trying to encourage me. I never let people know that I don't drink. I never announce that I'm in. Ever since I've been anything. around, which is you know over 18 years at this point, uh, you know I remember seeing you. You know, was, I've I've been around the rooms for years before we got to know each other, but you've always been around. You've always been front and center and very invested. And, you know, I myself, and I see this with a lot of people kind of vacillate in their level of, you know, emotional and physical investment in their own personal sobriety and recovery. It's something that I've dealt with, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, on the other side of that now and very much invested. But I see you as somebody who's never lost sight of the fact that this has to be number one every single day of your life. Like, how do you remain connected to that as a priority when it's been so many years? I mean, well, I've watched years, how many what years? So it's been 20 some, uh, how many years at this point? 26, 26 years. years now. Yeah, which is weird, but I don't know. It just, for me, it, it worked. Like it didn't turn me into some big spiritual seeker, but I really went down and tried to logically approach this and objectively look at it. And it's just like, I don't know. I'm able to look at things objectively at times and just kind of see with no emotion what, how the pieces go together. It's like putting together an engine or a transmission or taking your SIM card out of your phone if you do it emotionally, you're gonna break the phone or throw it on the ground or drop something or cut your finger. If you're just like, oh, how do I get that out? And read some instructions. They're like, put a little thing in, click. Mm -hmm. You'll feel the gentle click, pull it out. Oh, all the instructions have already been written for everybody on the planet. I just didn't find an instruction book until I almost died. And somebody showed me an instruction book. That one works for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's something magical, really magical and fantastical about being 100% based in reality and taking 100% self-responsibility. I think that, at least for me, is one of the keys to a very happy life that doesn't look humdrum, and typical and on and on. I mean, I I literally feel every day like like when I was 10 and 11 and like the weather or maybe 12 before I started taking drugs mm -hmm. and just surfing and skating and like, you know, there really wasn't a lot to worry about. And even though I'm an adult now, well, I'm fucking going to be 54 in a few months and I have bills and a family. I just had another baby six weeks ago. I have a three and a half year old daughter. I have a wife, I have a home, I have a dog, you know, you have cars. Every time I, I see you, you have all these things. And also <clears throat> it, it should be noted that, you know, you've gone through quite a bit in recent years. And every time I see you, you're like, I'm great. Life is awesome. You know, it's like, oh, you know, I'm a little tired. Oh, I'm going through. And then you would explain kind of what you're navigating at the Chemo. moment. And I'm like, how are you like, well, how do you have a smile on your face right now? Okay. Like you stuff seems to like run off your back. Like you're able to kind of have perspective on things in a really unique Which way. Which I get from this magical world. You know, I, I like, I'm like, they're like, dude, you can go to jail. Shit has to happen for that to happen. I can be committed to an institution, not visit one, but be committed to one. 
I can die from this, or I can accept that I have a really fucked up problem that some other people found a way out, and it's a spiritual way of life. Luckily, I didn't have to turn religious or wear mm-hmm. gowns or creepy shit like that. But it's something so, for me, like, I, I intellectually <clears throat> understand that in my own life, but maintaining that in the forefront of my consciousness on a daily basis as I you know, butt up against whatever obstacle or issue that I'm dealing with during the day, like that's where it becomes difficult and challenging. Like, cause I forget, or you know, I don't wanna believe that it's that stuff in that moment. Sure. I don't know, it works for me. Right. Maybe I was so close to death and out of ideas that I was like, fuck it, I'll try it. I mean. Maybe I was like such an empty vessel, like just a couple of drops of what they had mm-hmm. did the magic. I, I I don't know. I don't take credit for it. I'm a lucky motherfucker. I'm like a dude that are like, here, get in this little canoe and go down this gentle river where there are no rocks, no waterfalls, no snakes jumping out of the fucking branches, no bears jumping on you. And it's just a fucking gentle, lazy river. And like, you know, stop here if you want. Oh, Chocolate Mountain. They're like, how about over here? <laughs> Books you might be interested in. Here's all this. I mean, I've learned to become fascinated with a lot of stuff. I've also really, since I didn't realize I had this fucking problem, apparently I'd had my whole goddamn life. And it never crossed my mind, like, ooh, I shouldn't do 32 hits of acid or be shooting coke all summer when I live on a goddamn island where it is sweltering hot, but I'm wearing long sleeves all the time Mm -hmm. when I'm not in the water surfing or I'm trying to tan my forearms because I have so many needle marks on me. None of that registered. Like, dude, you have a problem. It never fucking crossed my mind. Not a, not once. So I gave up on diagnosing myself with anything else because I suck at it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if I miss that, I don't have the right, <laughs> right. to be like, oh, maybe I'm yeah. a little ADHD or whatever the fuck's going to be on Time Magazine next week. Uh-huh. Because especially in LA, right. everybody's got well, it that way. Yeah, week. I mean, speaking of that, and this is something that's come up on the podcast frequently, you know, every couple of years, somebody has, you know, recovery 2.0 or some new spin on how to get to the bottom of overcoming addiction, whether it's pharmaceutical based or some new kind of healing, you know, methodology. Like, how do you process all of that? What, what's your perspective on that? Whether well, it's plant medicine or, you know, some new therapy technique. If that person has done it, I'll investigate it. If they haven't, like experts writing opinions for people that have problems that the expert doesn't have is like, I mean, you're like the fittest motherfucker on the planet. And I'm sure there are fat dudes who tell you, oh yeah, dude, you got to do like 12 reps. That's Mm -hmm. when you really feel the burn. And you're like, dude, you just ate a hundred hamburgers this weekend. (laughs) Like shut the fuck up. Like that, it's, it's hypocrisy, it's advice, and it's fucking poison that I think other people have to get you to agree with them to justify them not looking at themselves and going, you're insecure and full of shit. You're trying to get attention from someone else. So you're trying to act like you know what you're talking about. 
So if somebody hasn't been through something, you know, it's it's advice, it's theory, conjecture, it's opinion, and I can't apply that to feeding my family. I can't apply advice, like, you know, experience, like I got kids, so I call my buddy who's got kids. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what the fuck's up with them, like, making noise all night long? He's <laughs> like, well, I called my doctor, and he's like, they're called growing pains because they're fucking growing. And I'm like, oh, makes sense. Now it just sounds cute. I'm not alarmed. Right. Little babies always making noise. Uh-huh. And doctor's like, yeah, they're growing. I'm like, oh. So my buddy shared his experience of that with me. So now I don't have to flip out. It's somebody Because I've gotten lots of bad parenting advice. It's just like, I'm sure, you know, you're like Mr. Finding Ultra, super healthy guy, dude. Who's your guy? Doug? Doug Evans Doug with Evans. the Juicero. Right. Which is going to change the planet. I'll bet you $100 cash some fucking idiot's going to come up, or a well-meaning human being, let me not rush to judgment, is going to come up to him and be like, couldn't you made that button a little smaller? Well, of course. Right? So, That's the nature of doing anything. But, and, and Doug will be like, I don't know, motherfucker. Why don't you go in a warehouse and hide out for three and a half years and basically redesign what NASA had to do to get to the fucking moon and then tell me about a smaller button. (laughs) After you raise all this money, feed these people's families, live on a cot, whatever you had to do, the same with... So if somebody hasn't been through it, they're outsiders. And, you know, I think a lot of people, they mean well. I think everybody's coming from a good place. Everybody's coming from a good place. But if you haven't been through this, like if you haven't witnessed personally a bunch of deaths of your friends or at least seen them disintegrate into complete fucking madness and not get better. You know, it's kind of like, I mean, why, that's an why experience you that you've, you've had a lot of those experiences. Well, you've I hang out with interesting of, people. Had, yeah, I mean, you've had a <laughs> lot of friends die. Yeah, most of them. Mm-hmm. Why they're here and I'm here, you know, I don't know. I can make up witty anecdotes in my head, but, you know, it could happen to me. In a minute. So how do you, one of the things that I've, that I've noticed that you're incredibly good at is this really fine tuned like laser perception of what's ailing somebody, particularly somebody who's new in sobriety and who's confused. Like somebody will say something and you're able to just like lock in and always say like this amazing thing that gets that person to shift their perspective. Like especially people that are like, you know, have seven days or 30 days of sobriety? Well, half of it is like, I just look everybody in the eye and then you can tell where people are at because people who can't look you in the eye really got a lot of shit going on and they're just like, mm-hmm. so I'm like, well, there's something in there. And then the other half is, I can't let, like what John Joseph was saying, like hanging out with negative people. It's like, I can't be around. I have to be, particular and careful about what I hear. So if some crazy guy is spouting crazy, he's trying to convince everybody around him that his crazy's okay and we're just like him. And I can be like, ah, sorry, fucker. Look at all of us. Two shoes. How many you got on? One. One of these kids is not like the other. You may want to take a look at yourself. And if, if it is a spiritual problem and it's, it's pretty obvious. The symptoms are pretty typical. 
And the answer, what am I trying to say? I don't know. Stuff occurs to me. Like, I'm not a doctor. Like, after ninth grade, like, I didn't go back to college or school or anything. Like, I have no education. I read a lot. I enjoy reading. I listen to your podcasts all the time. But you're incredibly <coughs> observant. You know, like you, you, I've seen this a million times where at the right moment, you always tend to say like this amazing thing that will like shift the energy <coughs> of, of whatever room we happen to be sitting in. And that stuff occurs to me. I don't have a it's script very, it's in my incre- head. No, it's, it's totally spontaneous. It, it's my intuition. Mm-hmm. Like half the time, but if I think I'm that thinking is, about stuff. That's, that is a, you know, this idea that, that you just have this intuition, like you know in the moment, um, you know, what the right thing is to say to somebody to throw that lifeline out or, you know, the insight that you have into your own recovery and this level of self-awareness stands in such incredibly dark, you know, profound contrast to the lack of insight that you had <laughs> you know, when you were out. You, like the idea that it never occurred to you that you had a drinking problem or that, you know, when you were Ever. completely out of your mind that this might be something you need to like sort of deal with Ever. is shocking to me. Like, how could you to not know that? Like that lack of self-awareness to this point now where you have this incredible intuition about, you know, what to say and, and a lot of, and an incredible level of self-awareness about where you stand and where you're at. Well, I think the having to face myself and really look at all of my foibles and realize I mean, I could have gone two ways. I could have killed myself out of shame, embarrassment, or I can just fucking laugh at it and be like, uh-huh. there was a quote that I read that said, nothing is more vile than being conquered by oneself. And I think the opportunity, I got, which is exactly what fucking happened to me. I was there the whole time and just destroyed my life. I wasn't a victim of shit other than bullying by myself. That sounded like friendly chit chat. Mm-hmm. So I think now I'm like, well, let me conquer myself, not not talk shit about myself or hurt myself or do any of that stuff. But if I really look at myself and be like, ah, eh, you know what, might not have been the wisest choice I ever made. Let me not do that again. What would be the mechanics under that? I seem to be free from all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I'm free from all that stuff, I don't have to carry everything around. And like, I really have the freedom from learning because <laughs> I'm like, okay, if there's a spiritual world, then fuck it. Make me as empty as possible. I'll be a vessel or something without, a lot of that stuff sounds religious, but I think religion uses that stuff because that's the same ideal, if that's the proper word, that I just empty myself and whatever's, Something made a fucking octopus and a coconut, and it wasn't Bill Nye the science guy. So (laughs) it kind of puts all human beings in perspective. So if there is something keeping gravity working and water molecules, like why doesn't water fly up in the air just randomly? Like everything works except me. So I'm like, how about whatever's running that, you run me. Let me get all of my bullshit out of the way. And happily that seems to work i don't know if it'll ever work for anybody else i doubt i'm the last guy to 
stumble into something like this, but I did stumble into it. It was a privilege to be exposed to this. I did it out of desperation, <clears throat> but there's a payoff. It really does work. I, I've learned to be gentle and kind, at least in my actions toward other people, because only because I remember what that kindness and gentleness felt like to me, but I can also recognize in other people's eyes and their voice the damaged human being that I was. And I'm like, wait, I was that fucking bad. Mm -hmm. And the guy said a couple of these things to me and it changed my life. So, you know, I don't think I'm supposed to take all the stuff I learned and just fill my pockets right. and be greedy with it. Right, no, you're constantly <clears throat> giving it away. And, you know, just to put it in perspective, I mean, you live a pretty amazing life these days. You're married, you have a brand new baby, you're, you've got, I don't even know, like every time I see you, you have some new crazy entrepreneurial venture that you're working on. Like you've got, I don't even- Yeah, I'm this like, used I don't to be even, one big like square have, room. I'm like, what do you do, Chris? I don't like, know, I don't, dude, <laughs> honestly, it just, stuff drops on me uh -huh. and I'm like, okay, Okay, right. I don't. Like I don't. You were like think making like large scale uh, images <clears throat> of space for NASA, like one week. Yeah, and, and then they're actually supposed. Yeah. There's two four foot <laughs> by ten spots up there uh -huh. that are supposed to have these new NASA images. I was just learning this new photo stitching thing on Photoshop last night. I love Photoshop. Uh huh. But for I'm years really you were you worked in production for years, right? Television, a lot of commercial, commercials and a lot videos. of music videos, right? Which was fascinating and interesting. And, you know, it was great. Like, I made good money. I traveled. I got to see cool stuff. But there's a point where it's just like, dude, we're selling fucking sweaters. Like, you know, that's it. And I started being around people who thought they were really a lot fucking more important than they were. Like, they're curing cancer. They're feeding starving people in some other country they've never been to. And I was like, ah, you know, then the economy dropped and all the budgets went down. But all of these same slaves were like calling me up, like trying to talk me into doing a favor for Pepsi or Ford. And I'm like, ah, I've kind of jumped ship. Mm -hmm. And my brother who, who went to college, studied real estate and has worked in real estate through good times and bad times, has stuck with it, raised a family, really been an asset to his community. He's like, wow, production's smart. Like these production companies and movie companies, like you guys are like a bunch of fucking dock workers. And like, you know, when the going's good, they pull in, you hop on the boat and they're mm -hmm. like, and when the going gets bad, they just stop in the harbor and they're like, oh, we only have so many jobs and, and we only have so much. And like, you fuckers don't move. Maybe one or two people will leave. And I'm like, Oh, okay. And there's a term in the production like called the golden shackles. Because you're like, you're working 19, 20 hours a day. And when you're working, the money's really good. The money's really good. Yeah. In perspective at the time for that kind right, of job. Right, it's that carny lifestyle. Like you're, you're it really job is. to job and to job. And for a while, I now. loved it. But a part of me changed and I didn't anymore. Mm -hmm. So how did you reinvent yourself? Like how did you figure out what you were going to do next? I got fired off a couple jobs with friends. Like I just couldn't get out of bed and do it and show up. I worked on this fucking weird puppet show. It was awesome. And I was just late. And I was like that guy waking up late. And I'm like, I'm not tardy. 
I'm not a late guy. I show up early. I do what I say I'm going to do. I try to be enthusiastic. And I couldn't do it. And I was like, this is beyond me. Like, it's time to go. And I was mm -hmm. like, I got, I had to consider life outside of that. And then when I do, like, weird shit occurs. And I'm like, oh, I'll try that. Like, I, I worked in the mailroom at E when when you have that uh, When you have that courage to just jump and, like, not, not know where the net is. The courage is almost like I can't fucking stand not doing it. Right. It's, I'm not a brave dude. But but having the trust that if you make that move, that something will show up and. Well, I haven't died out. from it yet. Right. So I'm like, well, maybe this is the time, but I doubt it. Like uh -huh. I try not to call my own shots. It's part of the overall surrender equation, though, right? Yeah, I don't want to be conquered by myself, and if I'm talking to myself. I can usually tell when I'm talking to myself, the voice is familiar, but also there's never anything positive in it. My intuition is always positive. It's like, hey, why don't you say hi to that guy? And I'm like, what guy? Oh, that guy over there. My head's always like, that's not gonna work out. Not super negative, but the tonality of it is always, it's like bleak with sprinkles on it. It kind of looks like a good idea, but when you really look at it, it's just despair and death. What your, head is, what your head is telling you versus like your higher consciousness, deeper instinct. Yeah, the higher consciousness, the subconscious, I don't really understand that stuff. I've looked at it a lot. I know my intuition is always fucking right. And it doesn't require thought. It presents ideas. To me, it's, it's almost like pictures. I see little movies. I'm like, oh, that'll be cool. Mm -hmm. And up here... Basically, on a bad day, it's second-guessing and self-doubt. It's like halfway to the car, and it's like, oh, are you going to wear those pants? Right. And I'm just like, now I'm just like, dude, shut the fuck up. Uh -huh. Like, now we're going to listen to really loud Devo in the car. Like, and, just shut up. Like, with, I've just learned, like, maybe I'm insane, but my life doesn't look insane. Mm -hmm. It doesn't. Like, I... You no, know, you I'm have not, a good. You have a good life. You have <clears throat> you have a good setup. Luckily, like I fell in love with a great woman who's a great wife. You know, way beyond what I deserve. Smarter than me, which is awesome. I hate being the smartest guy in the room because there's pressure all of a sudden to know stuff, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't know anything. This is the tough life you live. With that level of of self awareness, though, with that kind of acute, you know, uh, radar, if you could go back and you know, chat with yourself at age 20, what would you tell that guy? I would have gone back to 13 and like, don't pick up that beer in that joint. We got to find some money and basically buy the city of Charleston and the surrounding beaches for probably at that time, $80,000. Right. And then I could have bought <laughs> Kiowa Island, Seabrook Island, Hilton Head. All of that shit was undeveloped. They were just dirty islands. Wow. There was nothing there. I'd go back. Because by nature, so you go greedy. back and make a big real That's estate it. deal. That's it. Yeah, not yeah. help people. But you've seen it in the Twilight Zone, and all that stuff. When you try to imagine going back with good intentions, it always ends. You're the guy that's like, You're dude, they're going to kill Abraham Lincoln. They're yeah. like, shut up, you crazy man witch. There's a play going on. Yeah. And then bam. And they're like, hey, that guy knew it. Kill him. No, every domino had to fall for a reason to get you to this place. I just like going along for the ride. Now, what I try to do is stay out of the way 
or pick my path because I I was with me the whole time picking my path on the way here and it was <laughs> dicey. It was like, oh yeah, I've learned to do a really beautiful swan dive into a wood chipper. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. there's a point where we're like, whoa, what great form. Holy shit. <laughs> Why did he do that? And the next morning I'm like, oh, I bet I could do a gainer. Uh-huh. You know, and you never hear the noise of the grinder. I I just I found a freedom of just just taking a look at myself and be like, am I being greedy? Am I being petty? Am I being selfish? And like it's really easy to be a victim. Like everybody in this country will support you in being a victim, you know. And for me, sympathy is like fucking cyanide. And compassion is like the Red Cross. Mm-hmm. There's a huge difference. Like one is poisonous. You know, and those those things, misery loves company. The company and the miserable person don't know they're miserable. But if you walk by, they're like, did you ever see Dumbo? All those mean, fat lady mm-hmm. elephants that were making fun of Dumbo and then his wife, you know, his mom, and she got locked up and she's crazy. And look at those ears like Alice in Wonderland when she falls into like flower land and they're like, what kind of flower are you? And she's like, I'm not. And they, they all start talking shit. It's the... Like Walt Disney knew it. Like everybody, I'm sure there's stories in the Bible and the Quran. It's all the same. Like the gossip, the people. There are some of us who feel a bit outside of the world, but to get picked on for it, it's it's a little strange because if you if you look at this, I don't know where this idea occurred to me. I did not come up with this on my own. I heard it one day, but I realized like from a fucking ant up to a fucking blue whale or sperm whale. I don't know which one's the bigger. They're big. The animal kingdom, they're all fucking different sizes and shapes and colors. And you get mankind, human beings, we're all the same. It's the same cookie cutter. Little different, you know, frosting, little different sprinkles, same fucking animal. So I don't think my deal is to separate myself from the pack by justifying, oh, I'm... Republican or Democrat, I'm this or that or the other. And if you really look at it objectively, that's what goes on. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. so I don't participate in that. And I don't get subjected to it. So I try not to rant against the system. I just ignore that there is a system. The system is human beings. Mm -hmm. Some are going to mess up the ecology of the planet. Some are going to help a lot of people. Some are going to murder people so they can get a gold, you know. So you're saying, world. essentially what you're saying is you try to stay out of judgment and just focus on keeping your side of the street clean and dealing with dealing with people with compassion. Yeah. Unless like somebody has like some really fucked up shoes or something or a bad haircut, <laughs> then I can't help it. Just, uh, I won't, all bets are off. I won't head. say it to them, but in my head, there's your a fucking head. routine so going what is, on. So what is the daily routine? of Chris Davis, like how do you keep yourself in check? (coughs) I get up, I kind of review what I'm gonna do for the day. I meditate for about four or five minutes. You do that every day? Yeah. Is there any kind of method to the the meditation? I just do it. I'm just, I just, no, no, there's not. (laughs) Yeah, I have an unfiltered cigarette. I sit out on my porch 
And while I'm smoking, (laughs) I just go over my day. Uh And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do today? What are my plans? Whatever's out there, I'm like, hey, I'm here. I'm your little canoe again. You want to put supplies in me that need to go across the river? Whatever the fuck. I'm down with it. Like, I don't. I try to strip myself of me and just see what is out there and I volunteer for, you know, I volunteer for the army. I volunteer for the swim team for fucking soccer and baseball. I just do the same thing, you know, and I feel like I'm part of some team. I don't have to carry all the weight, but I'm willing to share the weight. Like if 10 guys pick up a fucking oak tree, they can do it. Mm -hmm. One person tries. It's a comedy routine. (laughs) Their brain's going to explode. Right. But you enter into, into life from this perspective of service. And there really is a, there's a spiritual world there. There really is. Like, there wouldn't be that many books written about it if it didn't occur. So I open myself up to that, and I'm like, I'm willing to be a part of it again. Let's see where it goes today. And so far, so good. That's all I can say. If it turns on me and things outside of me start demanding I light fires or kill people or steal from people, then I'm going to turn my back on that and go elsewhere. Mm-hmm. I would do that with people or institutions that would suggest I do harm and things like that. But that shit doesn't come up to me. So it's, I don't know. I really can't explain it other than I go along for the ride. So in the morning, I basically... It's kind of like a lazy river, but I just picture myself on this giant cliff and I just jump off and something catches me. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm going to jump, catch me. And if you don't, fuck it. It's been a good run. And so far, you know, I don't even hit like terminal velocity where I'm like, oh, freaking out. I just, I jump and something catches me and I end up in places that I wouldn't normally put myself internally, mentally emotionally it's very strange i mean i'm as bewildered as the people who don't like me are <laughs> and like how things keep unfolding and Why does that guy's life way. keep getting better yeah and i'm not doing anything to make my life better i bust my ass to make my wife and my children's life better i'll do anything i can to help my friends lives get better but you know i don't give but a fuck about me i have a really thin closet you know, got an old car. Like, I'm not rocking anything. But I really appreciate and enjoy the stuff that I have. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that, you know, the cliff the cliff jumping thing is, is kind of a beautiful allegory for surrender. And the idea that you're looking at situations from the perspective of how can you serve or provide uh, you know, gets back to what we initially were talking about with respect to ego, right? Like keeping the ego in check, uh, delivering yourself in service to other people. I do jihad on my your, fucking ego. Taking like, yourself out of the equation is the secret to improving your own life. And if I take myself out of it, there's no risk of my ego showing up. Uh-huh. Now when it tries to show up, I can tell. I'm like, ah, oh, motherfucker, you did nothing but I just, rip me off. I just realized the title for this podcast is going to be Chris Davis Goes Jihad on the Ego. <laughs> I like that. What are some of the books that you've read that have had the biggest impact on you? 
there's this woman that I discovered. Do you remember the Bodhi tree? Yeah. I used to go down there all the time because I'm like, oh, I'll fucking read some of this the hippie book, shit. It's a, like, yeah, it's like a new age bookstore that was right next to uh It's now going to get turned into fucking Forever 21 or some horrible right. but super I think the, Weren't they reopening the Bodhi tree somewhere else? Well, so not that one. I just went yeah. by. They're tearing it down. Um, wonderful bookstore. You know, it smelled like Nag Champa. Is that how you pronounce yeah, that? Yeah, incense. All these kooky calendars. They had everything every type of spiritual practice or religious practice. And I would just go in there and read. And a friend of mine said, you should go check that stuff. I think I was talking shit about all that. We're <clears throat> making fun of the Bodhi tree. He's like, why don't you go down there and just like browse through and like buy a book, like invest in it. So I went down and looked, you know, I bought a couple of things, like little teeny small things. And I'm like, this is all advice for like smart people. Like, I don't want advice and I'm not smart, so fuck these things. And I, but I would go in, I got into a practice of going down there and I discovered this woman. Oh, I had this really weird experience. Like I was driving down the street and I was going down Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood. I was coming up on a car wash and something literally said, like, turn in there and get your car washed. And I'm like, I want to go home. And I'm like, I'm talking out loud to myself <laughs> to, Something that I really heard. And I was like, great. I, I guess this is the point where I go crazy. So I pulled in, got, you know, the basic car wash. And I was like, okay. Nobody was around. So I was like sitting on this bench smoking a cigarette. And this dude came in that I recognized. And he's like, what's going on? And I just like had a breakup with this girlfriend who didn't know we were in a relationship. <laughs> it was kind of one of those, like I like fell for this chick. And she was like, oh, yeah, I, no, I can't do that. And it was like, but it, now I see it was like one of these break open things. It's like, you know, my ignorance will only go so far and then it has to break. And this guy's like, oh, you know what? He's like, what's going on? I'm like, blah, blah, blah. You know, not a sob story. Just tell him where I'm at. And he's like, you know what? I live right over here. Hold on. He grabbed his clothes out of the back of the car. He walked over. He came back. He lived like right on the other side of this fence from the car wash. And he handed me this book. And I open it, and it's a fucking case for a book on tape. Mm -hmm. And there's no tape in it. And I was like, what, what is this parable? <laughs> right. And he's like, oh, shit, I thought that was the book. So, and then my car was ready, and I was like, can I hold on to this? And he goes, yeah. He goes, it really helped me. So I got in my car that was washed. I drove the Bodhi tree, and I'm like, do you have this book? And it was called The Game of Life and How to Play It by this woman named Florence Scovel Shin. Mm who was part of the new thought movement, mm -hmm. I guess in the 20s or 30s in mm -hmm. Manhattan. She was like a teacher. She taught, um, who wrote Sermon on the Mount? Oh, man. Emmett Fox? Uh, is it Emmett Fox? Some listener will be screaming right I know, now. Like, it's yeah, not Jeopardy. Yeah, yeah. I don't give a fuck. Um, like Emmett Fox. But he was one of the people who she taught. Right. And I opened this book and it went right to a section about love and heartbreak. And it was like, boom, boom, boom. And it was like, the pain I had was gone. And I was like, holy shit, what is this magic? And then I found, I read that book. And she's like, life's a game. Like, you just got to play it. You got to show it. There are certain rules. And if you say these things, you're going to get these things. And I was like, this is crazy and then i found she had three other books and then i found the bonus volume that all four books were in one book 
which cost about a third of me buying all four books. <laughs> right. So I bought that book, and I've just been reading that on occasion. Oh, I so read this it. is I recent. Probably, oh, so this is this didn't all happen. No, recent. Oh, Twenty you years go, ago. Oh, you go. You could. You just go back to twenty these years books. ago. Anyway, when this happened, when I found this book by Florence Shin, I'd already been going to the Bodhi Tree for like two years. So I'd read and investigated a lot of stuff and like all the spiritual shit. It just kind of got wispy and ethereal, and there was a lot of maybes and kindas. And her shit was just like, bam, practical, objective mm-hmm. application to this magic world that exists. And I was like, well, maybe it's bullshit. And I try it and it was like, oh, it's real. So you actually implemented it and it had practical like ramifications. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know about metaphysics. Like they don't teach that in ninth grade in South Carolina, you know? <laughs> te- I never even fucking teach that heard of it. in ninth grade it. anywhere. I, I, I'd never heard of it. So I started looking into it and I, I really dig it. Like it's... Mm-hmm. I practice. It's just funny. It's like there's all. So this what, shit what would that be like around. one of the one of the things you would practice out of that? Well, if you have um, resentment or anger at somebody, you're basically not basically. You are precisely encouraging sickness in yourself, some form. I mean, she breaks it down into like you know the gallbladder and all that. But you know, like I said, I haven't been to school. I don't know where any of that shit is. I know where my liver is because I had liver cancer. Mm-hmm. Although when I was having chemo, I was looking on the monitor because I had this weird uh, new chemo done. And they, I saw this thing on the monitor and I was like, oh, wow, my liver kind of moves. And I kept looking at it and this doctor's like, that's your lung, dude. <laughs> and so I would be like, <sighs> and see my lung get big. And, so, and I was so like, I kept talking to Throughout liver so. cancer, you thought your liver was where your lung was. Well, that one time, my All first right. bout of chemo. And then I got so annoying to the doctor. He's just like, told the anesthesiologist. Yeah. He goes, could you help Chris out a bit? And then I woke up and I was like. And I don't want to like cavalierly skip over the fact that you had liver cancer. But but you know, I don't anymore. But I had it. Yeah, I wasn't even sure that was something that you wanted to talk about. Oh, and I when care. I had said earlier, like, you know, you've gone through some stuff. That's kind of what one of the things I was alluding to. Um, but I would see you, you know, throughout that and you'd be like, you'd never would say, oh, you, you never played the victim throughout that whole thing. Just like, yeah. Except in the days right after chemo. Right after Because it was yeah. like being squished between two garbage trucks uh-huh. hitting each other like 60 miles an hour. It was brutal. But, you know. It worked. And fully in remission now. Gone, gone, mm-hmm. gone, 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 gone. And I also like changed my diet. I went super plant-based. I mm-hmm. went disgustingly plant-based, but it worked. You know, I went to go see this healer lady and she's like, eat this, but do the Western medicine. Like, don't be right. that guy. And you know, the combination, I still go back and that was a couple of years ago. So I go to UCLA every couple of months to get fully scanned and checked and like, you know, blood tests and CT scans. And they're just like, what's up with you? And I was like, I practice Wiccan or, you know, whatever. (laughs) They're just like, you're so fucking weird and you cuss all the time. I'm like, well, I wanted you to know me because all those gray fuckers out in the lobby, they don't give a fuck. They're going to do whatever you tell them or they're not going to do what you tell them. And that one orange guy, nobody wants to sit next to. Like, I don't see those guys in the lobby anymore. And now when I visit, they're just like, oh, you just had another child. When they Mm -hmm. told me, I was going to be dead in 14 months. Is that what they like, told you? Yeah. I had to kick my wife out of the room. I go, listen, fucker, straight up. What's the deal? He's like, 
you got to get your affairs in order. And I go, I've seen that shit on TV. What does that mean? And he goes, I go, when am I in a casket? And he's like, 14 months tops. So I was like, okay. Yeah, you didn't, I didn't, take know, care I didn't know it was that dire. The funny thing was, you know, they, they always talk about centimeters. Like in the South, when they tried to bring the metric system, people were like, fuck Europe, all that stuff. So I have no idea what a centimeter, a millimeter is. So I thought it was small. And I'm like, so when they told me what size it was, it was like, I was like, so like, you know, like a ping pong ball. And he was like, like a fucking grapefruit. And I was like, it was that big. Wow. Yeah. And I was like, oh, thank God. I don't know math. Cause that might've been too heavy for mm -hmm. me. I may have been like, I'm going to blow my brains out. Luckily I only get enough information. So when they gave you that news though, but I mean, you can't get, you can't get around 14 months, get your affairs in order. I mean, how do you? How well, my you wife could process that. She could get like, everything. How did in you? Order. You know, how did you wake up the next day and move forward? I was like, I gotta find. You know, I do this metaphysics stuff, so I'm like, let me channel this stuff. Let me tap into it. I'm like, look, I don't want to die. I will if I'm supposed to, but I don't want to. And then you know, my wife, you know, told a friend of hers who said, "Oh, I know this nurse. She knows Chris really well." I swear to God, I'd never seen this woman in my life before I met her. She worked at UCLA and like just everything unfolded. And I was getting in front of these doctors that week mm -hmm. who were like, how the fuck did you get in here? And I'm like, don't worry about it, dude. Like we gotta go take care. I met this young hotshot guy who does um, radiology. So I didn't know what the fuck that, I thought he was like an x-ray guy. <laughs> but he's like super, apparently the cancer I had is only fed by arteries. So they went through an artery, up in the artery, into the cancer, filled it with like these time-release little bombs of chemo, mm -hmm. and then they cauterized the arteries. So when the guy was telling me what he was doing, I was like, so basically, it's like when Yosemite Sam swallows a stick of dynamite and it blows up and smoke just kind of pours out of his ears and nose for a couple of days and he goes, medically, exactly. Exactly, and except like, close your mouth and plug your yeah, nose. Exactly, right. which is exactly what it felt like. But he went in and I was like, listen, I'm probably gonna die from what I hear, so let's not tell my wife this, but you get as close, you go dangerous. Like you put more of that chemo in me than you feel comfortable with. Like, let's just try to blow this shit out once, like nuke right. it. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he got as much as he could in. Wow. And I regretted that shit for nine days. Yeah. And then I went back and did it two more times. And like, it was, it was dead by the beginning of the second thing and wow. completely gone. And then the third time was just like for Make, shits and giggles. Right. Making sure. Target wow. So two, two sessions and it just exploded it. Done. But I also ate nothing but. I was basically like a Norwegian Viking in 1200 mm -hmm. eating shit in his front yard, just like mung beans, kale, no salt, no sugar, nothing processed, right. nothing. That sucked. And That's I would amazing, drink man. like two gallons of water every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and it worked. Like I flushed out my system, you know, that I learned about the alkaline. I mean, nothing on the level of what you guys know, but I was like, I'm going to die if I don't. And, you know, my daughter, we were pregnant also with my son, 
who ended up eight months down the road. Like we got the news. We were pregnant with a son. The day before I got the call where the dude's like, dude, you got a tumor and you're going to fucking die of cancer. Oh and then God. eight months into that, our son died yeah. during pregnancy with the umbilical cord around his neck. And that's a bummer that you never prepared for. But it's it's weird. There's this weird river of comfort that I don't pretend that shit didn't happen. But I don't go to like the secret place and hide from it. I just face it. And it's but weird because I'm watching myself go through it. When I know I don't have the capacity to handle this shit. They don't show that shit on TV. And that's pretty much where I've learned everything. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> here you just sort of, you know, once again, like in semi-casual fashion, like grace over the fact that you, you know, basically had a stillborn son. And, Alive, and, and, dead and, with the umbilical cord. And when that was going on, I remember you talking about <coughs> it in that same kind of tone, which struck me because anybody else would be like, oh, this thing happened. I don't know what I'm going to do. You know, like that's never but been- But then you turn into a you. victim. Right. And then you get sympathy and that shit is like acid rain. Like I avoid it at all costs. I can't fucking have it because I'll believe it. Mm -hmm. I can't do it. Mm -hmm. Can't can't do it. So I don't set the arena or the opportunity for that even to come near me because I'm not strengthening myself to battle negativity. I just make sure it doesn't fucking exist around me. And do you have the same facility for recall that you do with sobriety? In other words, like you're able to keep like what it was like when you were sleeping on that bench in front of the Long Beach library, Napping. like in the forefront of your <laughs> consciousness to kind of inform your recovery. But do you do the same thing for your health, like, do you remember, like, I had a, you know, the doctor told me I had 14 months to live. And so I have to, on a daily basis, rearrange my priorities or my lifestyle choices to, you know, reflect this, you know, reality of temporal mortality. Yes, but when the cancer goes away and my wife and I were arguing about something, whatever we argue about, and she was not getting my point. And I just like my brain exploded. I went down to the 7-Eleven. I drove and I, mm -hmm. there's one literally a 400 feet from my house. I drove over there. I got a pack of cigarettes. Went and got a Mountain Dew, my mm -hmm. favorite. I had salt, sugar, nothing, <laughs> nothing but fucking mung beans for, you know, well over a year, maybe a year and a half. And I'd gotten used to it. And then when I was leaving, this donut was like, hey, fucker. And it was a cinnamon bun. And I was mm -hmm. like, you're coming with me. And then like totally just blew up my diet. It was really strange to watch. I was like, wow, this is like some weird. It, it showed me I wasn't perfect and I wasn't this spiritual fucking guru. It's like, I'm a human being. And, you know, when shit goes too crazy, and it may have been just like going through cancer, losing the baby, you know, being scared to death I was going to die at any time. They're going to be like, no, the cancer's in your elbows or, you know, whatever the fuck. Mm -hmm. I I grew up watching TV, so I've seen every delivery of bad news that you could ever write or create. So that's what I go on, you know. Mm -hmm. I don't watch too much ER, but I've watched all these other weird shows. So I imagine bad things are going to happen. So I had to... For me, it was like, oh, shit, I'm just like everybody else. Like, I can't be cocky. I can't be special, you know? And I was like, 
this fucking cinnamon bun is good. Right. And I didn't die the second I had a cigarette. And I was like, You're a human it's weird. Being. But now trying to hop back off that train, That's I'm paying the, the price. It's, right. a, it's once again, it's like. That's the thing. So, you know, I got my own struggles. Mm. But they're fun. Right. You know, they, they certainly keep me right sized. We got to close it down here. But I got to ask you one more thing <clears throat> before we go. Yes. And that is, you know, you could probably see this coming, but it's really to... I have no idea what you're you up to. Oh, come on, I, man. I don't. Yeah. I want to speak to, you know, the alcoholic out there who's still suffering, you know, and, and if there's something that you could say, you know, offer up some words of wisdom that might be helpful to somebody who feels stuck in their addiction, whether it's substance or behavioral or, or it doesn't matter what, you know, what is the path towards, you know, working your way out of something like that, that prison of the mind and the body? I think it only, it will only work if somebody asks for help first and doesn't dictate what type of help they want. I, I, somebody taught me that the word humble meant I have to acknowledge I have a problem. I have to ask for help for it. And I have to do the fucking help exactly the way it is offered to me. Which inadvertently shatters my ego. It takes me out of the game. It takes all the fucking pressure off of me. But you know, I mean, in the modern civilization and free Western world, everybody's like self-help, be your own man, be a millionaire. Like, you know, money is very misconstrued with power. And a lot of people use money to have power, I realize I don't fucking have any, but I'm able to tap into one that is there, whatever's keeping gravity going and making dolphins and fucking, right. you know, shrimp. Those things are cool. <laughs> like, I've never met a dude who's like, yeah, I'm going to give it fucking eight legs and a spike and a weird tail, and <laughs> and they'll be delicious sometimes, you know, if you choose to eat those. But all of that, everything that's happened to me was because my pathetic utterance of help was like simply saying, I don't know what to do. You know, I was banking on dying and I didn't. And when I didn't, it took a couple of days, but I had no choice. I really was like, fuck, I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. So until somebody asked for help, like it never crossed my mind. Like I've talked to people in the masters like, dude, you were so out of control. We tried to help you, and I'm like, I remember the barbecue you're talking about. I remember what Cindy was wearing. I remember Skinner, Freebird, the big guitar part was playing. But I don't remember that part of the conversation. I remember afterwards, you know, we went over here and listened to that. Like, I remember all that stuff clearly. I never remember anybody like, you've got to stop taking drugs. Or like, mm -hmm. you're getting out of control. Once I asked for help, all that stuff got clear. It's this weird, like a kaleidoscope. Or maybe not a kaleidoscope. It's like, I don't know. It's this weird inversion. Does that make sense? Well, I think what it is, is, is this bizarre spiritual equation that bends the time-space continuum in some kind of strange exactly. way. Where that shift where you click, you know, you flick that switch and you click into willingness, you tap into something outside of yourself that, you know, and I described it in my book as the, the universe conspiring to support you. Like something happens where when you tap into that, that 
desire to improve in a very genuine way, and you're able to kind of shut off the chatter of the thinking mind. Under the threat Crazy. of potential death <laughs> yeah. or well, it terminal doesn't matter. homelessness. It doesn't even matter what motivated you to get there, <laughs> but once you're there, stuff happens. Oh yeah. And that is a fact. That's been my experience. I've heard you talk about it a million times. I've heard it come out of the mouths of so many people that you and I both know. And it's just, it's true. And none of it is self-manufactured. That's what I like about it. Like. I'm not into self-help. I am fucking self-helpless. And once I remember that, then I'm open to other things helping me. But, you know, I wasn't raised in an environment or in a nation where asking for help, it's not even fucking mentioned. It's not like, oh, here's how you do it when it's awkward. It just doesn't fucking, it never came across yeah, nobody my teaches, radar. Nobody, nobody teaches you how to ask for but help. But if you are drowning, the Boy Scouts teach you to yell, help and wave your fucking arm in the water. Mm -hmm. So it is there. It's just, you know, everything says, oh, when you're in trouble, call 911, yell for help, scream for help. And that does bring people toward you. So, But that butts up against this kind of uh, masculine prerogative that to ask for help is to imply weakness. Or to become a corpse. All those tough motherfuckers, like once they die, they've never come back and been like, bro, it ain't so bad. <laughs> it's like, whatever, mulch. Mm -hmm. Like, I, that's what I look at, the, the grim reality of it. You know, and I, I almost fell into that a number of times for no reason. I was never hell-bent on harming myself. There was no reason for it. But life would get frustrating and kind of pointless and kind of meandering and boring but the second i asked for help i mean it's unreal yeah. unreal like i fucking got it there really is something i'm sure there's somebody like picturing me in like some dirty old worn out like wizard <laughs> costume <laughs> right now i'm sure we sound no like you that look like you 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 look like you just walked off stage with social distortion you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know? You have this sort of like skater punk, you know. It's weird because I'm totally in the new wave. Yeah, but uh, no, you're hip. You look like you, you know, you look like you spent time in Long Beach or maybe Laguna. That you spent time on a surfboard, that but also, you know, in the <laughs> punk scene, which I never did. I saw the Clash in Nashville in '83, uh -huh. but that was for the Let's the the Rock. What was it called? Combat Rock Tour, uh -huh. which was a dance tune with just new waivers. But I saw the show and I was mortified. I was like, what the fuck? This is not for me. It's punk rock. Well, that's so funny because that's that's how I feel about, like John Joseph comes from that, like the super oh, yeah. hardcore, but like I can't tap into that music emotionally. For some people, it's everything. Like the Cro-Mags are it and that's that's their jam. And for me, I can't I can't get, I love John personally. He's one of my closest friends. Oh yeah, that dude's awesome. I, I can't connect emotionally with the music. I don't know that much about it. I just got turned on Bad Brains five years ago, uh -huh. which is awesome, which it's weird because I really like them. And John said, those are the people who turned him on to. Right, yeah, it was all about Bad Brains for him. Yeah, bringing him in and they're that. great. And I so. just heard them five years ago, but I can tell you every fucking remix, The Cure and Depeche Mode right. and New Order, New Order. and <laughs> all of them. Dude, I love that shit. Craftwork. Like that stuff too. <laughs> all of it. I love it. Like that's like happy music. Plus punk rock to me was 
fuck the government, basically that. And I'm not going to do what you say. And I'm like, well, I never got out of school, and the government gave me an M16 and a check and food and a bed and clothing. I mean, it's all the same clothing, but... So you didn't have that rebellious. Yeah, fuck you. (laughs) Government's doing okay by me. I mean, I didn't realize until years later I was a sucker and... But that was my choice. But once I saw what it was, I I got out of that. Once I saw what production was, to me, I got out of it. I don't go back and talk shit about those worlds. I will relate the experiences I've had in there. It's just always something in me is like, okay, time to change gears, which is exhilarating instead of frightening. Like, I don't get filled with self-doubt about it. I'm like, mm-hmm. fuck it, why not? Let's try something else. Yeah, you seem to always have that kind of operating system you're never like oh, i'm really i'm not sure what to do i'm scared you're not like that at all you're just like yeah i'm gonna do this new thing we'll see how it go you know you're just open yeah until something kills me i mean then i'm like oh shit maybe uh-huh. i should have thought about that but so far it's good look i met you i met john joe like all this stuff my life keeps getting enriched like i'm the one going along for the ride mm-hmm. people are like oh dude you're you know i get it i'm weird as fucking shit but I don't make apologies for it. It's not an act. I am who the fuck I am. I know what I'm bringing to the table. I try to be kind and nice to people. I have a weird sense of humor. <laughs> I listen to weird music. I dress weird. And you've helped a ton of dudes get sober and stay sober. Some dudes help me. It just seems the most natural. Th- I would never even question whether or not I'm going to help somebody, which is weird because I wasn't that guy before. I was not that guy. Mm-hmm. I didn't want anything from any. I wanted nothing to do with people. I'd always felt a bit like a weirdo outsider. Very strange. And there's no book. There's no class. There's no clinical psychologist. There's no um, whatever you call those people in high school, guidance counselors. Like, I didn't know the questions to ask to even get fucking answers. Mm-hmm. It was just like, oh, self-contained. This is weird. Let me try walking over here. That's weirder. Let me go back there. This is frustrating. Eh, Let me try this. Just kind of that. Luckily, you know, I stumbled into this. I mean, so far, like, you and I have never been in an argument. No, we never I don't owe you any money. That's right. I haven't borrowed anything from you. Uh Uh-huh. You haven't showed up at my house at 3 in the morning knocking on the door. I don't even know where the fuck you live. (laughs) You have my address, which is rare. I don't give that thing out. But You have been a gigantic positive influence on my life and my sobriety, and you've been massively of service to me. And uh, and I greatly, greatly appreciate that. And I feel very fortunate to have you in my life. And I love you, man. And it was a privilege to share your story here today. Yeah, I was wondering, did you ever see that documentary Seinfeld did called Comedian? I think maybe I saw parts of he, it. I didn't they watch pair the up thing. this guy named Orion Williams or something like that. And Jerry Seinfeld, Jerry retired all of his work and said, I'm going to work on getting a new 45 minutes of material. Mm, right. And they're going to pair along with this other guy. And the whole time, Jerry's working his ass off in these horrible clubs where people are heckling and like, you know, it's just a pain in the ass. And he's grinding and grinding. And this other guy's like, when do we get famous? When do we get famous? And Seinfeld's like, it's not about the money. It's not about the fame. You show up. And at one point, they're in Canada. And this guy comes in, I think the club owner, and he goes, Oh, look, there's, I guess Seinfeld has some super agent Mm. who's also Larry David's agent. And he goes, oh, and this guy's here. He's like, oh, he was uh, 
Larry David's agent. I may be getting that part wrong. And he was Seinfeld's agent, and then now he's Orion Williams' agent. Like, who's next? The parrot from Beretta? <laughs> it was like, yeah. and Orion's face just cracked. So when that just kept echoing in my head, I'm like, oh, yeah, Ariana Huffington, like the dude who wrote Chicken Salt, 500 million books. Mm -hmm. John Joseph, and then like me, I'm like, who's next? Like, are you going to have like Andy Dick's acting workshop? For, for Shakespeare, <laughs> I gotta keep it. I gotta keep it diverse. I like the and mix. eclectic. I, well, you, know? you have because the eclecticness really threw me. I'm like, there's no rhyme or reason. I'm like, this dude's batting it out of the park. Like, mind, body, green. Like, what's the guy's name? Doug, who's doing Juicero. Doug Evans. Dude, yeah. I got a man crush on that guy. Yeah, he's amazing. That dude is awesome, and I get it. And you know, Russell Simmons. I mean, dude, those dudes dropped. The fucking Beastie Boys, Licensed yeah, to Ill. Mm -hmm. Oh, what a great record. Yeah, Russell's a special guy. And, you know, it's and been- a, it's, me. <laughs> it's been, yeah, but, but look, your message is beautiful. I think it's impactful. And I love, you know, being, I love the privilege of being able to shine a light on somebody that is important to me. And, uh, and I'm glad that you came here today and allowed yourself to be open and vulnerable. It was really I'm cool. still mystified. But I said I would show up and do this. You like, did, I man. love you. I'll support you. Don't whatever you want. How do you think it went? Uh, no one's crying. <laughs> We're good. <laughs> the phones haven't been ringing for us to get off the air. I know. <laughs> There's no phones. I in, thought it was good, man. <laughs> I dug it. I enjoy it. I love you, it man. It was good. It was a nice break. And All it's right. five o'clock. Time That's for right. me to go home. Let's go. Peace, Word. brother. Plants. So what'd you guys think? I just love that guy. He's so solid. He is like a rock. And I'm so appreciative of him coming by and being so open. He is just a tremendously inspiring example of service. The level of service that this guy exudes and practices in his daily life is really something to behold. And he's been of tremendous help in my life, uh, in my sober adventure and journey. So. Uh, I appreciate him tremendously and I hope you guys enjoyed our conversation. Uh, this is the part of the show where I tell you guys to go check out the show notes. There's not a ton this week because like I said at the outset, Chris isn't a guy who has tons of articles written about him. He's just a dude. Uh, but I have included a few interesting links as well as some links to related podcasts if you enjoyed this one. And also, like I said, I always write like a, a pretty interesting blog post about all the guests. So please check that out. And if you haven't already subscribed to my YouTube channel, make a point of doing that, youtube.com forward slash roll. I've been having fun vlogging. It's incredibly creatively gratifying to share an aspect of my life in that medium. Uh, what else? I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production, Sean Patterson for graphics, Chris Swan for production assistance and show notes, and of course, theme music by Analemma. Thanks, you guys. I love you. I'll see you next week. Yeah.